Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Morning, everyone. It is Wednesday. Caitlin is back, We're back, which makes me very happy. We are back. And there's a lot going on this morning. There's so much going on today and to what's going to happen to come. Let's hope a deal. Yeah, let's we'll see. Let's get started. This, do I sense a skeptic, a Washington <laughs> skeptic over I'm here? I'm a cynic after being there for so long. <laughs> I believe it. Let's get started with five things to know for this Wednesday, May 24th. We begin here, though, in politics. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis set to announce his 2024 White House run today, but there will be nothing conventional about this. He's going to make the announcement on Twitter with Elon Musk, the once favored platform for his rival, Donald Trump, before he got banned. And speaking of the former president, he now has a court date in the Stormy Daniels hush money probe here in New York. He'll stand trial in March of 2024, right in the middle of the campaign for another term. And a super typhoon is lashing the American territory of Guam right now. It's expected to bring a triple threat of heavy rains, hurricane force winds and life threatening storm surge. A six-week abortion ban is now headed to the South Carolina governor's desk after it passed the state Senate overnight. Now 14 states ban most abortions outright. South Carolina will now join Georgia with that six-week cutoff, along with Florida pending a court decision there. And groundbreaking medical technology that is powered by artificial intelligence is giving those who can no longer communicate a voice again. We'll show it to you on CNN This Morning, which starts right now. So I was so surprised yesterday reading that Governor DeSantis is going to make the biggest political announcement of his career on Twitter. Yeah, it, there's a little bit of risk because this, I mean, most people don't aren't on Twitter. They don't use this That's format, true. but it sometimes it's a little glitchy and has some bugs, but we'll see if it's smooth sailing tonight. And then tonight. he's going to be, I think, do a network interview. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Later. So it, it's one of both. It's not just Twitter. Really interesting with Elon Musk. We'll talk about all of that because today, as we said, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis will finally make that an official announcement that he's running for president. After months of relentless attacks from Donald Trump, we're told he'll make it official tonight during this live discussion with Elon Musk on Twitter. The governor's wife teased the announcement with a video of DeSantis getting ready to go out on the stage. For a while now, DeSantis has been widely seen as Trump's most formidable challenger, but his standing has been slipping in the polls and among some concerned donors. Trump, meantime, has been rallying his base against DeSantis and outright mocking him on social media. So we begin this hour with Steve Contorno, who is live in Miami and knows everything about Governor DeSantis. What do you think of the Twitter move? Well, it's certainly not conventional, as you said, Poppy. And, you know, we, we, most candidates often announce their presidential ambitions in their hometown or some other place of political significance. But Twitter under Elon Musk's stewardship has become this dividing line between liberals and, and conservatives. And DeSantis, if anything, loves to seize on these cultural clashes and make them his own. So that is certainly part of the motivation here. As you mentioned, it's also a place that once launched Trump's Uh, political aspirations, but he notably is no longer on the website and DeSantis has taken to sort of 
trolling the former president of late. But it's also a move that is not typical of candidates, and that is something DeSantis's people tell me he is very interested in doing over and over again in this political race. You know, he doesn't want to run a conventional campaign. He intends to to operate uh, in, in these sort of moments that can generate a buzz, like it is right now. Get get a stir. Uh, and get people talking about him in ways that they don't necessarily always talk about political campaigns. He has an uphill climb against, Ron, uh, against Donald Trump, and this is one of the ways he is thrusting himself into this conversation in a way that already has much of the country to talk and copy. Uh, you also have to think DeSantis will use to his advantage the argument that he, if elected and reelected, could serve for eight years. And Trump would only be eligible for four. Is DeSantis tapping into that? He absolutely is. In conversations privately with donors, that is something that his political team brings up often. Donald Trump would be a lame duck from the moment he gets into mm. office. And, and DeSantis's case is this. He has an ambitious and bold agenda for the country. Conservatives want to see a lot of wins. You can't get that done in four years as a lame duck. It's going to take eight years. And he also talked about what the potential future fights might be for the Supreme Court, yeah. suggesting that this next president, if they do get eight years in office, could potentially uh, nominate some more justice to the Supreme Court. Take a listen to how he described that potential in a recent conversation with Republicans. So it is possible that in those eight years, um, we'd have the opportunity to fortify uh, Justices Scalia and Tom Alito and, uh, and Thomas, uh, as well as actually make improvements uh, with those others. And if you were able to do that, you would have a 7-2 conservative majority on the Supreme Court that would last a quarter century. So this is big stuff. So I don't know if he's predicting there that a Supreme Court justice is going to die in the next eight years or, or step down. That is usually how their terms end. But, 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 but that is the argument he is making and something he is going to present as a contrast to Donald Trump in the coming months. Well, it's a really notable one because remember what Trump said when he was running, I will bring pro-life justices to the Supreme Court and get Roe versus Wade overturned, and that's exactly uh, what happened. Steve, thanks for the reporting. There is now about an eight-day window for President Biden and House Republicans to reach a deal on the debt limit, according to warnings from the Treasury Secretary. Of course, this would prevent the economy from crashing. Speaker Kevin McCarthy just wrangled the White House when he said this last night to our colleague Manu Raju. Been asking for the White House to make a number of concessions. Are there any concessions that you're willing to make, and what are those concessions? We're going to raise the debt ceiling. That's your concession. That's yeah. That. White House did not take kindly to that. Sources saying that McCarthy's comments not going over well with officials there. As we were noting, the Treasury Secretary has been warning about this June 1st deadline, saying it is the hard deadline of when the government could potentially run out of money to pay its debts and would default for the first time in American history. Several House Republicans, though, are casting doubt on that date. I don't believe that the first of the month is a real deadline. Like, I, I don't understand why we're not making Janet Yellen show her work. June 1st, nobody, everybody knows that's false. The fact is we're going to have cash in June. The fact is we're not going to default on our, on our debt. That's just completely false. Uh, we've got the money to do it. So uh, everybody just needs to be patient. 
CNN's Arlette Sines is live at the White House. Arlette, it feels difficult to keep up with the status of where these talks are going. One minute we hear that things are positive and that they're having productive conversations. The next, it seems like they are on the brink of not coming to any agreement on this. What is the White House saying as of 6.07 a.m. this morning? Well, Caitlin, I think at this moment, what is clear is that these talks are in a precarious state. When you take a look at the time crunch that lawmakers and the White House are facing, as well as these comments from House Republicans saying that there are significant gaps in the negotiations, specifically on the issue of spending level. Now, sources familiar with the talks told us that those uh, comments from House Speaker Kevin McCarthy uh, have really irked some here at the White House after they felt talks had been productive on Monday. And it really speaks to this frustration that we've seen bubbling up over the course of the past few days, starting with President Biden's comments while he was in Japan on Sunday, when he said that in order to, for there to be bipartisan compromise, there needs to be movement from Republicans as well. Uh, one thing that Democrats have been expressing some frustration with is that they feel they have presented some options, one of those being freezing spending at current year's levels uh, as a means of compromise with Republicans. But comments like that uh, from McCarthy saying that the only concession they're making is raising the debt limit is something that has rankled some at the White House. Now, this all is coming, as we say, each morning, the, t the clock continues to tick down to that potential June 1st deadline uh, when the U.S. could face economic catastrophe. We are waiting to hear uh, whether White House negotiators and Capitol Hill negotiators will once again meet this morning uh, as these talks uh, from yesterday appear to be at a standstill for a little bit. Yeah, it seems like a seesaw every five minutes. Arlette, keep us updated on where they stand today. Thank you. So let's take a moment to step back. Let's take a look at the details of where these negotiations stand right now. So the top sticking point for Republicans are spending caps, right? You got to stop all the spending. Well, work requirements, safety net programs, and rescinding unspent COVID relief money. That's also part of it. For President Biden, increasing work requirements for social safety net programs like food stamps, that's a major sticking point. He also has proposed adding negotiations to expanding the kinds of drugs that Medicare can negotiate price on. The major issue for Biden and McCarthy is considering the very liberal and the very conservative wings of their parties. For McCarthy, the House Freedom Caucus has said they will not accept any deal that is less than the deal already passed in that Republican-controlled House a few weeks ago that would cut spending by $4.5 trillion. The House Progressive Caucus says they cannot support any of the Republicans' proposals in that bill. They're encouraging President Biden to invoke the 14th Amendment and try to unilaterally avoid a default. That's according to two sources familiar with the matter. The House Democratic leaders are also trying to use a maneuver called a discharge petition. They need five Republicans to do that. It would force a vote to just cleanly raise the debt ceiling. They need 218 members to sign off on that. So far, they only have 210 votes for that. Where does that go? Now, where do the American people stand on national spending? And should that be tied to the debt ceiling being raised? This is a really interesting new number out from the new CNN poll this morning. And it shows actually 60% of Americans do feel that Congress should only raise the debt ceiling if it also includes spending cuts, which Caitlin, I think, is fascinating. And it includes independence as well. Yeah. Those are really interesting numbers, especially something that the White House is looking at, obviously, as they're trying to make the argument of who is going to be to blame yeah. if these talks aren't productive. And we've yeah. seen just how precarious that has been. Also happening right now, the strongest storm in nearly 50 years is hitting the U.S. territory of Guam. This monster typhoon has left nearly the entire island in the dark as we wake up this morning. Only about 1,000 out of 52,000 customers there have power 
The National Weather Service says the typhoon Mawar is posing a triple threat of dangerous winds, storm surge and torrential rainfall. CNN's meteorologist Derek Van Dam joins us now. Derek, I mean, obviously it is Guam is taking a beating right now. What is the latest in the sense of where the storm stands as it is right now and when it's expected to pass? Yeah, they're certainly getting the worst of the storm right now, uh, Caitlin. And in fact, this is what it looks like just outside of the National Weather Service office. Old college buddy of mine took this video. He's a meteorologist there. They are under an extreme wind warning that is reserved for the most extreme moments from the National Weather Service. It's like getting hit with a tornado for several hours at a time as this hurricane eye wall scrapes the northern portions of Guam, not making a direct landfall, but certainly close. But of course, this is a game of miles because that makes all the world of difference in terms of how much storm surge impacts the island. 140 miles per hour, so no longer a super typhoon equivalent, though, to a strong Atlantic hurricane here. You can see the current wind gusts. That's 105 miles per hour near where that video was shot. The threats here, of course, the flash flooding. We're going to experience 15 inches of rain over the next uh, 24 hours or so. And now that the storm is moving just north of the island, we're starting to get battered with a storm surge on the western kind of vulnerable facing coastline areas. So that is where some of the largest population density of this U.S. territory is located. There's the forecast accumulation. And you can see just how much rain that's over 10 inches in the next uh, few hours. Wow. So incredible. Yeah, Can't that me. it just seems like it could be incredibly damaging. Derek, as you're monitoring the storm, please keep us updated on what you're seeing there. We'll do. All right. The date has been set for former President Donald Trump's criminal trial in the hush money case. And it is right in the middle of the presidential primary season. What a judge told Trump he can and cannot say about that case. We'll also bring you the latest developments after an anti-Putin Russian militia launched a surprise attack inside Russia. Welcome back. So this morning, an anti-Putin Russian group based in Ukraine claims the goal of its attack in Russia's Belgorod region is the, quote, complete liberation of Russia. Now, the governor of Belgorod says one person died in this cross-border fighting. Nine people have been hospitalized in overnight attacks by an unmanned aerial, aerial vehicle. Cars, private homes, and administration buildings have been damaged. The power still has not been fully restored to some districts. So let's go to our Fred Plekton, who's live in Kiev, Ukraine. What is Ukraine, what is the government there saying about these attacks? Hi there, Papa. Well, the Ukrainians continue to say that they have nothing to do with this. I was actually able to speak to the Ukrainian National Security Advisor yesterday, and I asked him about this, and he essentially said, look, these are Russians fighting on Russian territory. They are obviously anti-Putin Russians, and they are normally integrated into the Ukrainian security forces, but the Ukrainians are continuing to say that when these people go to Russia and conduct actions like they did, that they are acting independently. Now, you're absolutely right to say, though, this seems to be something that the Russian government and the Russian military still are not fully coming to terms with. The governor of that Belgorod region said, quote, this is not a quiet night because of those drone attacks that you were talking about with those nine people still in hospital. And, you know, Poppy, despite the fact that the Russian military is now saying or claiming that they've pushed all of the attackers out of Russian territory and liquidated 70 of them, as they've put it, there are even questions in Russia as to why the Russian 
Russian military and the Russian authorities allowed something like that to happen and were not able to prevent it. In fact, the governor of that region, he said to, to, to one person who was asking him that he has even more questions for the military than the citizens who are still waiting uh, and can't return to their homes. Poppy. For the Russian military about why they couldn't prevent this. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Exactly. Yeah, that's, exa- that's exactly the case. Fred Plankton and Keith, thank you for the reporting. Also this morning, new evidence may soon undercut for President Trump's claim that the documents he took after he left the White House to Mar-a-Lago were automatically declassified. Something is being handed over to the special counsel today. A number of documents will tell you what they show next. Also this, why Twitter, why with Elon Musk, more on Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' unconventional plans to launch his 2024 campaign today. New overnight, attorneys for former President Trump are now requesting a meeting with Attorney General Merrick Garland as the special counsel Jack Smith's probe into Trump's handling of classified documents appears to be wrapping up. Today, also, the National Archives is set to hand over 16 presidential records they say shows that Trump and his top advisors knew the correct way to declassify documents, despite the former president's claims that he could simply declassify them with his mind. CNN's Caitlin Polens joins us now. Caitlin, of course, we saw this letter that the former president posted overnight on Truth Social requesting this meeting with the attorney general. It appears, based on their letter, that's who it's addressed to. Uh, What would the significance of a meeting like this be? Well, Caitlin, you don't ask for a meeting like this twice. You get one shot at something like this. It is something that defense attorneys do, and it's the sort of meeting that gets requested at the very end of a case. Now, we don't know exactly what precipitated this letter right now, uh, but this is the type of letter uh, where they're asking for a meeting. Right now, they're saying President Trump is being unfairly, and we request a meeting at your earliest convenience to discuss the ongoing justice that is being perpetrated by the special counsel. So they're going above Jack Smith, the special counsel, directly to the attorney general, asking essentially to appeal or to get a sense of what is happening in the case. Uh, And there have been a lot of things that have taken place recently, Caitlin, a lot of grand jury activity, a lot of uh, reporting from sources that we have heard where the special counsel is just locking down the details. They are gathering the notes. They have gotten access to Trump's attorney, uh, Evan Corcoran, both with testimony and with his personal notes, and they have basically been scouring Mar-a-Lago to make sure that they are talking to everyone. That certainly seems like it's at an end point. And then on top of that, it's very clear that what's happening with the National Archives, the National Archives today is set to turn over 16 records about the classification authority and whether Trump personally was informed uh, about how to declassify things. They say there are communications to that effect. That's the sort of thing that isn't the core of the case. That's the sort of thing prosecutors need whenever they're preparing for, you know, possible defenses that Trump could bring up at trial. So it really does signal the end in a lot of different directions. But everybody has to wait for exactly what the Justice Department will do here and whether or not they, too, believe this is the end of the investigation. Yeah. And we haven't seen Trump's attorneys elaborate on this letter. But, Caitlin, all this comes as the date for his trial in a separate case, the Stormy Daniels hush money probe that's happening here in New York has been set. It is March 2024, which is just days after Super Tuesday is going to happen, of course, days before other key votes in certain states. You know, the question about how this plays out, 
it's not going to be just a quick trial that's over in a few moments. It's something that could take uh, several weeks and really cut into his campaign potentially. Right. And on top of that, it's not just the physical act of Donald Trump being present for his own trial, uh, which he has the right to do and is expected to do at this point. But it's the fact that it takes time for a defendant to prepare for trial. So as states are going to be voting at the beginning of 2024, March 5th is Super Tuesday, and then just a couple weeks later, if Donald Trump is in a moment there where he's working with his attorneys about his defenses, if he himself is preparing to testify in his own defense, that takes time. And that takes time that he would not be able to spend, you know, at a rally or on the campaign trail right then. So that is what is happening in that case. It really right is right in the middle of things. Uh, and so that is something we're going to be watching exactly how it plays out right up to that point. But of course, Caitlin, I should mention trial dates. They sometimes move. Um, this one has a formal date. But, you know, court dates, things can fluctuate. A lot of things can happen between now and trial. A lot of things can happen. Caitlin Pollens, thank you. After months of speculation and anticipation, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis will make it official tonight. He is running for president. He will make that announcement on Twitter. A spokesperson for his political team tells CNN the Republican will announce his bid in a conversation on Twitter with owner Elon Musk. And the event will be moderated by a very friendly face, tech entrepreneur and a big booster of DeSantis, David Sachs. In 2021, Sachs contributed more than $70,000 to the governor's political committee. Joining us now is Justin Miller, senior editor at New York Magazine's Intelligence. Sir, good to have you. Good morning. Um, David Sachs is a really big, important voice on Twitter, um, especially with the business community. Um, mm -hmm. I'm so interested by this strategy. There's a little protection in terms of reaching people who aren't on Twitter because he's going to talk on Fox later tonight. But what do you make of it? Well, Elon Musk endorsed uh, Ron DeSantis a couple months ago for president. He said something to the effect of Donald Trump was old news. It's time to move on. They're ideologically simpatico. Musk has moved pretty far to the right in the past couple of years, um, especially on the issue of transgender people. Elon Musk has mocked them on Twitter. The platform is now allowed to dead name people. And DeSantis, of course, has made going after them. And the idea of transgender people really cornerstone of his campaign to, to be the Republican nominee. You're not surprised. But he hasn't formally endorsed him. And he kind of added that caveat. You know, he's been retweeting Tim Scott, Senator Tim Scott's campaign videos, as well as he announced. Uh, of course, the question is, who does he formally endorse when that happens? Can we talk about the technical aspect of this, though? Because I think most people watching have no idea what Twitter Spaces is. I mean, yeah. obviously, not very many people are on Twitter. Um, certainly our community of journalists and reporters and lawmakers is. But when it comes to actual Twitter Spaces, there's a little bit of a risk on the just the technical side of this. Sure. Well, yeah, I think it's a it's a sort of an unusual platform because I think this will be audio only, yeah, maybe that's not right. video, right? So, uh, DeSantis, I don't know. We'll have to have a good radio voice, I suppose. Um, and then, you know, whatever is, happens there will be turned into audio for television. It'll be covered in the newspapers, so it'll have a greater reach, much beyond Twitter. What do you think Elon Musk gets out of this? I think that Elon Musk gets people talking about Twitter in a fairly positive light, instead of all the the errors and sort of problems that they've had gets a big marquee event with a lot of coverage, both, you know, in, in journalism and a lot of people tuning in. It's probably be the most listened to Twitter spaces event ever. And it makes him a bit of a political kingmaker. You know, he's having a real role now in Republican politics. Yeah. And the question I've heard is the Trump aspect of this. Obviously, yeah. he was banned from Twitter. 
Elon Musk reinstated him, allowed him to come back on. He hasn't returned yet because he has his own platform, Truth Social. But I do think some people in Trump's world and in those circles yesterday were wondering, does this drive him back to Mm. Twitter? Yeah, I, I don't know. It's a little bit of a mystery why Trump has not tweeted on his pl- favorite platform since since he was reinstated in November. Maybe it's because of the competition element with True Social, his alternative platform, which might be loosening up this summer. So maybe this will be the tonight. Maybe this will be the day that he surprises us and, and gets back on. Yeah, there could be legal constraints, yeah. but we'll yeah. see. Right. That, it is just interesting, though, because Tucker Carlson said he's going to launch a show on Twitter. I mean, it's just interesting. We'll, we'll watch or we'll listen. We'll listen to the Yeah, DeSantis I think Musk tonight. is trying to make this a bit more of a platform to compete with some other upstarts like Rumble, who are yeah. starting to take the market in, in terms of social conservative for mm. media. That's a good point. Or, uh, sorry, media for social conser- for conservatives. It's okay. It's 6.30 in the morning. Yeah, it is. It's a little early. <laughs> Thank you for the analysis, Justin Miller. It's good You're to welcome. have you. Yeah, we'll see. Also this morning, there is a new CNN report after a U.S. general ordered a tweet to be put out to announce that a senior al-Qaeda leader had been killed but they hadn't yet confirmed it. What our exclusive reporting is uncovering next. This morning, we're getting new details about the U.S. drone strike that happened in Syria earlier this month that may have killed a civilian by mistake. CNN now exclusively can report that the general, Eric Carrilla, is the senior general who's in charge of U.S. forces in the Middle East. He ordered his command to tweet that a senior al-Qaeda leader had been killed after he was targeted in the drone strike, despite not yet having confirmation, though, of who was killed. That's according to multiple defense officials telling that to CNN. A Pentagon spokesperson answered questions about the strike on Tuesday. Good afternoon, everybody. Just a few things. Uh, they are investigating uh, the allegations of civilian casualties. So, uh, you know, I think our record speaks for itself in terms of how seriously we take these. Very few countries around the world do that. The secretary has complete confidence that we will continue to abide by the policies that we put into place. Joining us now from the Pentagon, CNN's Natasha Bertrand, who was one of the reporters who broke this story. Natasha, obviously, this is something that is of, of great concern because ever since the strike happened, there have just been very few answers from the Pentagon. What is the latest that you're learning? Yeah, Caitlin, so let's take a look at the timeline for a second. So the drone strike was on May 3rd, and a couple hours after that, CENTCOM tweeted from its official account that the U.S. had targeted a senior al-Qaeda leader in that strike and that more information would then become available. Well, we never really got more information on that, and there was no clarity about who that senior al-Qaeda leader actually was. Well, now we're learning that that tweet was actually put out by the commander or ordered to be put out by the commander of Central Command himself, General Eric Carr before uh, the U.S. really had any kind of real confirmation about who was actually targeted in that airstrike. So fast forward a couple days and the Washington Post starts asking questions and presenting the Pentagon with some information that called into question the CENTCOM statement that they had actually targeted a senior al-Qaeda leader rather than a civilian. After that, uh, Central Command began looking into this information that was presented to them by the Washington Post and decided that because of the evidence that the Post was presenting, things like photos, witness testimony from the, the man's family, 
It warranted opening a civilian casualty assessment, which is kind of one uh, review kind of short of a formal investigation to see whether actually a civilian had been killed in the strike, as his family has alleged. So the review is ongoing into whether the civilian was killed. But obviously it raises a lot of questions about why this tweet was put out in the public sphere before uh, Central Command actually had real confirmation of who they had actually targeted in this airstrike, Caitlin. Yeah, and his subordinates wanted him to wait for confirmation before actually tweeting, right? So we are told from one defense official with direct knowledge of the situation that his subordinates did urge him to hold off on putting out a tweet, putting out an announcement about this until they had further confirmation that they had actually targeted a senior al-Qaeda leader because defense officials recognized that it could likely take a few days before they actually had that positive confirmation and identification. There is no U.S. military footprint in that area of Syria. Uh, So they did urge him. However, two defense officials pushed back on that, saying that they did not actually hear any consternation or voiced opposition to that. Uh, However, look, the question remains of why this was put out there before they actually knew all of the facts, Caitlin. Yeah, and that tweet is still up as of now. Natasha Bertrand, thank you. South Carolina, one of the last few places in the South where people could legally seek abortions, has just passed a new very restrictive bill. The bipartisan effort to stop that is next. And America's ability to borrow and pay back money is its superpower. A potential debt default could change that. CNN's Christine Romans here to explain. In her VB. Hi. South Carolina is now poised to become the latest state to ban abortion after just six weeks. The state Senate voting yesterday to ban most abortions after early cardiac activity is detected. That can be as early as six weeks before many women even know that they're pregnant. The bill offers very few exceptions, but those exceptions are for fatal fetal anomalies and the health of the life of the mother. It would also make exceptions up to 12 weeks for victims of rape or incest. A filibuster of five women who are now known as the sister senators, it's made up of three Republicans, one Democrat and one independent, tried but ultimately failed to block this new measure. The bill is now headed to the governor, to the desk of the governor, Republican Henry McMaster, who said he is going to sign it into law as soon as possible. Also this morning, Democratic and Republican staff negotiators scrambling to try to reach a deal to raise the debt ceiling before the fast approaching June 1st deadline. The default would not only be catastrophic to the U.S. economy, but it would also mean the end of this nation's sterling reputation as a borrowing superpower. Our Christine Romans, chief business correspondent, is here with more. Your piece on this yesterday was so excellent in boiling down why shoot ourselves in the foot and lose something that is so critical. I mean, from the outside looking in, if you're talking about a spending philosophical fight among parties over the debt ceiling, I mean, the rest of the world thinks we're absolutely, utterly insane. It's, It's an irrational fight to have. I mean, America's borrowing power is her superpower. The rest of the world would kill to be able to have the position we are in. The United States can borrow however much money it wants and to pay for whatever it wants, whatever Congress decides. And that is a sign of strength um, because there are investors around the world who will park their money into the safest place to do business, and that is the United States. Um, Treasuries are the backbone of the global financial system. They make the dollar the world's reserve currency. Everybody around the world does business in dollars because the U.S. is in this very prime spot. 
as um, the lender to the, to, to the to, or the borrower to the rest of the world. You know, it is a really interesting position we're in. And this is tainting that every time we get up to the line. This is the third time now. It tarnishes that just a little bit. We are going to have a mountain of obligations that we'll have to sell treasuries for in the months ahead. What if borrowers um, or what, what if what if people balk? What if they don't want to buy our treasuries or right. demand higher interest rates? That could happen. They demand higher interest rates. That means our debt is even more expensive and it's even more expensive yeah. to our money. And that actually hurts us. So the thing that we're fighting about is actually making us weaker, not stronger. It's making us weaker. Well, and it's not for new spending. It's spending that the U.S. has yes. already incurred. The, what we're hearing, though, from some Republicans is they're saying, is June 1st actually the date? And Yellen has been very careful in her language to say early June, possibly as soon as June 1. She's doubled down on that many times, tripled down even. What's up with the the essential argument that maybe she, maybe it's not actually June first? It's such an unhelpful distraction. She runs the cash books. She sees what's coming and going out. We have a, a huge amount of obligations, and there are so many variables. She has been very clear as early as June first. We're going to get a bunch of payments June 15th. That's quarterly tax receipts will come in. So money will be coming in. We also have to pay, I think, $42 billion in Medicare and $25 billion in Social Security before that June 15th. This is like... So that doesn't even itself out. It, it, it's just, we are running on fumes in the bank account right now, and we're talking about still moving money. It's, it's a position of weakness. I don't know why anybody would, would want to say, yeah, yeah, no, June, June 1st. It, it could be June 1st. Maybe you have a few more days. Maybe by some miracle, a bunch of tax money comes in on June 15th and it buys you more time. But you have already telegraphed to the world that you could be prioritizing your payments and your debt could be in default. We're already signaling that yeah. we don't have our you-know-what together. And that is a really dangerous place to be. I almost said a very bad word. I just wish you were there in their offices, in their ears. Hope they're listening. Thank you, <sighs> Treasury Secretary Christine Romans. <clears throat> oh, God, no. I, I mean, that, that would be... No way. Brilliant. <laughs> Thank you, Roman. All right, we'll see what happens in Washington today. You never know. Uh, also, speaking of Washington, the poem that was recited on the steps of the Capitol during President Biden's inauguration has just been moved in a Florida library after one complaint from one parent. When day comes, we ask ourselves, where can we find light in this never-ending shade? The loss we carry, a sea we must wade. We've braved the belly of the beast. Amanda Gorman there, you remember her. We have her response to this complaint next. And happening overnight, why a Texas bill to prominently display the Ten Commandments in every classroom failed to advance. Is that clear? Did I sound clear? Very, about why very good. We, the successors of a country and a time where a skinny black girl descended from slaves and raised by a single mother can dream of becoming president only to find herself reciting for one. You will remember that powerful poem written and recited by Amanda Gorman during President Biden's inauguration. Now, a school in Florida is moving it to a different section of its library because a parent complained. A Miami-Dade school district official confirmed they moved the hill we climb from the elementary school section to the middle school section. The Florida Freedom to Read Project says it obtained documents showing a parent complained about the poem, claiming it contained, quote, indirect hate messages. Now, Gorman said she wanted young people to see themselves in a historic moment, and that's why she wrote it. 
Our Carlos Suarez is following all of it this morning in Miami. Carlos, good morning to you. What's really interesting reading the complaint here, this one-page complaint, is that it's from one parent. That's it, right? That's exactly right. Uh, Poppy and Caitlin, good morning. So this one mother wanted uh, several books banned, including Gorman's poem. Uh, it really is just the latest example of a parent challenging a book at a school under Florida's parental rights in education law. Uh, as you mentioned, that one uh, complaint that was obtained by the Freedom to Read Project shows the parent wrote of Gorman's book, quote, it is not educational and have indirectly hate messages. Now, elsewhere in the same form, the parents said that the function of the material is to, quote, cause confusion and indoctrination. Now, asked whether the parent is aware of professional reviews on the material, the parent wrote, quote, I don't need it. She incorrectly said that the book was authored by Oprah. In response to this, a committee made up of educators agreed to move that book at the K through eight school. They moved it from the elementary uh, portion of the uh, school to the middle school portion of it. And in a statement, Miami-Dade County Public Schools said it was, quote, determined at the school that the hill we climb is better suited for middle school students. And it was shelved in the middle school section of the media center. The book remains available in the media center. Now, it is unclear what part of Gorman's book was not age appropriate for elementary students, but was okay for middle school students. Poppy? Wait, so just to get this straight, they didn't clarify what part of the book, uh, of, the, of what Amanda Gorman wrote they had a problem with? That's exactly right, Caitlin. So we reached out to Miami-Dade County Public Schools yesterday, essentially asking for all of the documents related to the complaint, as well as the work that was done by the committee members. We were told that that information would be uh, provided to us um, in due time, but it's unclear whether the committee members at any point uh, uh, were identified exactly the portion of the poem that they took issue. We don't know exactly what part of it they deemed was, again, appropriate for students in elementary, uh, rather in middle school, but was not age appropriate for students in um, elementary. It's so bizarre. They just move the, they move it, but they, it's not clear what exactly it is that they were alleging. Not to mention, we have the actual complaint here. It says right. the author publisher is Oprah Winfrey. Right, it's not Amanda Gorman, obviously. And she responded, we should note, uh, thank you, Carlos. Amanda Gorman responded saying she was gutted by yeah. this and the fact that it was a single complaint from one parent. Also concerned, she pointed to about more books being moved or banned as yeah. well happening. OK, we'll keep on this. Yeah. Also this morning, Target is pulling some of its LGBT merchandise off of the shelves after there was customer backlash to the store's new Pride collection. The company says it received threats and that it is now acting to protect the safety of their employees this collection featured more than 2,000 products that included pride-themed clothing, books, music, home furnishings. For now, Target says it is only removing products by the LGBT brand Apra Ballon. Target is also reviewing certain transgender swimsuits and children's merchandise, but no decision has been made on those projects yet. CNN This Morning continues right now. DeSantis getting into the race and launching the campaign in a streaming event with Elon Musk on Twitter. This is a very strong signal of what his campaign is going to focus on. If you are Ron DeSantis, you have to do something to get attention. This gives him an opportunity to play a stunt with the most famous person on the planet. 
A catastrophic possibility for the world economy would be devastating for countless Americans. I think the best we can hope for is a deal to make a deal. I don't believe that the first of the month is a real deadline. We're not going to default on our debt. That's just completely false. Everybody knows that's false. To hold the entire U.S. economy hostage is reckless. South Carolina is poised to become the latest state to ban abortion after six weeks. The bill now heads to Republican Governor Henry McMaster, who is expected to sign it into law. They just don't know, in most cases, that they're even pregnant. We do not have the right to make decisions for someone else. A monster typhoon barreling towards Guam, the strongest storm there in decades, potentially deadly Category 4. That triple threat, it means torrential rain, it means extreme winds, it means storm surge. With a three, bullseye! Tatum knocks it in. Blocked by Tatum on the shot by Vincent. Keep this series extending. Take it one game at a time. Trying to save our season and win tonight. We did that. I'm going to tell you something else. Game six in Miami, going to be game seven for Miami. Strong prediction from uh, from our buddy. Our friend Charles Barkley. Chuck who's soon going to join the CNN family. Yep. But what a series, right? They needed to win that game. I know. It was amazing. Who are you rooting for? <laughs> Nuggets. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. We'll get- Wait, okay. put me on the spot, Casey. <laughs> Sorry, I should have given you a heads up. We'll get to our sports headlines in a moment. Give Poppy a moment to decide who she's rooting for. Uh, but we have some really big political headlines big. today, as we were talking about. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who has been rumored to be running for months is now set to officially announce that he is running for president. CNN has learned that the Florida governor is going to make the announcement tonight during an interview with Elon Musk on Twitter. His wife, Casey DeSantis, the First Lady of Florida, released this teaser video of him getting ready to walk out on a stage as a dramatic voiceover speaks in the background. Do I have the courage? Is it worth the sacrifice? America has been worth it. Every single time. DeSantis has widely been seen as former President Trump's leading challenger for the Republican nomination. But there are big questions about what this launch will look like because his poll numbers have been slipping after some shaky performances leading up to this launch. Trump has been relentlessly attacking him for months now. And we're now learning that Trump and his allies have been preparing for this moment with a coordinated plan to try to upend DeSantis's campaign launch. A source tells CNN it includes a social media blitz and Trump surrogates appearing in Miami, where DeSantis is set to begin meeting with donors today. So let's begin this hour with Kristen Holmes, who joins us now. Uh, you cover all things Trump world. What is this anti-DeSantis blitz going to look like? Good morning, Poppy. Well, the social media blitz is actually very interesting. I talked to a number of advisors. They have been courting some of the biggest names in conservative new and social media since last year. That means bringing them down to Mar-a-Lago, letting them fly on the plane with the former president, trying to get them to give the former president their backing. And we're likely going to see that network at play today. Now, we are being told by advisors they're going to hit DeSantis on a number of different policy topics. That's going to include his reforming entitlement programs, his past views on trade policy, on China, his COVID-19 response when he was the governor of Florida. Now, in addition to this social media blitz, we are also told it's going to include a rollout of videos, including one of Trump directly addressing the camera and DeSantis's candidacy. 
even with those polls, Poppy, that Caitlin just mentioned, even though the fact that Trump is leading, there is not a single advisor that I have spoken to who believes that this is over or isn't concerned about it. They believe he might get a boost in the polls after this announcement. And they do believe that DeSantis is Trump's biggest competitor. So they are taking this incredibly seriously, Poppy. It's so interesting because it's such a stark difference to how Trump almost welcomed Tim Scott into this race earlier this week. Um, are there is there anyone in Trump world that's worried that all these sustained attacks on DeSantis could actually not help Trump? I would say that there are no advisors in Trump world who believe that these sustained attacks on DeSantis are going to hurt Trump in any way. But I will tell you that I've spoken to a number of people outside of his orbit, Republican operatives, people who even support the former president, who do not want him to continue attacking DeSantis. They want to be able to say that DeSantis will run in 2028 when Trump is done uh, and that that's his time to run. And they, it's harder for them to say that and get behind that if the former president is constantly attacking attacking Ron DeSantis. Kristen, thanks for all the reporting. Yeah, a lot of questions about what that's going to look like. So for more on this, let's bring in Sarah, Sarah Fisher, CNN's media analyst, a media reporter at Axios, CNN correspondent, Donnie O'Sullivan, and Ben Smith, who is the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Semaphore. Donnie, what do you make of the fact that this is how Elon, or that DeSantis is choosing to launch his campaign in this moment with Elon Musk? Well, it's Donald Trump's old turf, right? I mean, he use Twitter so effectively. Um, look, I mean, I think uh, Musk has tried to position uh, this platform as a bastion of free speech, unless, of course, you're people in Turkey tweeting things that the government doesn't like up <laughs> yeah. to the election or a journalist who's tweeting about Elon Musk's jet. But all that, uh, towards, all that to one side, uh, bastion of free speech. So I think he's very much DeSantis, who we know uh, loves this, you know, engaging in the culture wars. He's uh, going to the home of it today. Uh, I got to say, though, I'm, you know, I cannot see Trump resisting coming back on the platform today. The last time he tweeted was January 8, 2021. Yeah. Um, I can see Trump giving up that. And space. that legal restraint that w that held Trump on true social is over now. So he can, isn't it? I, I, it's, I think it's unclear. It's still not totally yeah. clear what the, yeah, yeah. what the shareholders would make of that. Yes. Okay, we'll see. Your headline is amazing this morning, Sarah. Thank you. Musk moves in on Murdoch meaning Rupert Murdoch. Yeah, I mean, a couple years ago, Fox is where you would expect to see someone like Ron DeSantis trying to kick off his campaign. The fact that he's going to Twitter, it also suggests and caps off a week of a lot of conservative movement to Twitter. So it's really notable. You had Tucker Carlson saying that he's moving his Fox primetime show to Twitter. Yesterday, I reported that The Daily Wire, which is a huge conservative entertainment media company, is moving its podcasts over to Twitter. You're going to start to see a lot more momentum flock there from conservatives. And that used to be Fox's territory. If you're Rupert Murdoch, this is a scary time. Yeah, it's absolutely right. Sarah and I had exactly the same take, which could either means we're both deluded or <laughs> yeah, I think I mean I think it's a moment when all media is splintering and Fox had this incredible monopoly on the conservative space. It's going to Twitter. I do think the question in this moment when things are just so polarized is can Twitter hold on if Twitter becomes the central conservative media space, which is an okay business, it's not a business like being a social platform, can they hold on to anything else? You know, can they remain a sort of central convening space for journalists, entertainers, athletes? I think that's a totally open question. Yeah, it is a question, but it, it's, he's not just going on Twitter. He's expected to go and do an interview with Fox News right after this. So he does have that two-pronged approach. Yeah, they are second. Speaking of diluted, though, 
The Trump's his one of his PACs said they believe because he's launching this with Elon Musk. It's one of the most out of touch campaign launches in mm-hmm. modern history. But the thing is, Ron DeSantis kind of wants it to be that way. He has been sending a signal all along throughout his campaign that he can go around the mainstream media. That is them. They are the enemy. I don't work with them and I don't play ball. Of course, we know that's not true. He still needs to rely on Fox News and other mainstream outlets. But in choosing to start on Twitter and having the press, us, talk about it, he is sending a signal to his supporters, look, I'm the person that's not dealing with that mainstream media like others are. Yeah, I would say, I mean, the problem is here, he sort of took Donald Trump's attacks on the media sort of literally rather than seriously. I mean, Donald Trump attacks the media, but and as you know better than any other single person on the planet, Mm. does it on our platforms in a way that is intended to reach the audience of this media. DeSantis looks at Trump, says, oh, he attacked, he hates the media. He doesn't deal with the media. Nobody deals with the media more than Donald Trump. Donald Trump is centrally a media character whose entire style is to create engagement with us. That's, and DeSantis is doing this other thing, which is almost like listening too closely to Trump and taking it totally literally and not talking to the, to the media. I think that's a sort of a strange move. And particularly if you look at the demographics of the Iowa caucuses where they're going to, yeah. where this is actually going to happen. You have, I was just looking at the at the entrance polls in 16. I think there are more people, about the same number of people over 65 as there are under 45. So it's a, I'm not sure it's the sort of, I'm not sure it's a social Twitter audience. But within the Republican conservative right wing online space, you know, this isn't necessarily just mainstream media, quote unquote, versus Twitter and social media. Internally within that space, uh, you know, Twitter is now competing with the websites like Rumble. Uh, you know, people we normally think of like it's Twitter versus Facebook versus YouTube. Uh, now, now you know, Twitter and, and Rumble, which is a new video platform. That Donald Trump Jr. is on. Exactly. Has signed exclusive partnerships with a lot of influential figures on the right. Uh, Twitter is now competing for those people as well. And and worth noting, David Sachs, who's going to be the person moderating this interview tonight with Ron DeSantis on the Twitter spaces that's being co-hosted by DeSantis and Elon Musk, is not just a DeSantis supporter, but a Rumble supporter and affiliated with them. And so I'm looking forward to 2024, to Doni's point, seeing what the infighting is, not just between the mainstream outlets trying to grab for candidates, that's what it's always been, but these new sort of right-leaning outlets mm. that are going to be competing for their attention. Yeah, it's totally fascinating. And that he's a big voice in the business community, too. Yes. It's also interesting, given DeSantis versus Disney. We're and shocked he, by that. He, But he yeah. defended uh, how DeSantis handled COVID back in 2021. Yeah. He was uh-huh. a big fan of that. And also, I think that what everyone is watching today is not just how he's launching this, but what that actually looks like and if it does help him given he has been slipping in the polls. I guess Fox is first on television because it's audio only. On this Twitter announcement. By the way, given Twitter, Twitter under Musk has not always like been able to stand up in terms of like the, the platform has literally dropped. That's at, what at Caitlin times. was. So hopefully the audio, like, the, hopefully the thing doesn't collapse under the pressure. Yeah, it's not a non-zero chance. Yep. Yeah. Thank you guys very, very much. Thank you. Thank you all. Happening right now, we are tracking a major development as some of the strongest storms in decades are hitting the U.S. territory of Guam this morning. The eye of the storm has just passed the north of Guam, but the eye wall is right over the island right now. The typhoon has basically left the entire island in the dark, and only about 1,000 out of 52,000 people and customers have power. The National Weather Service says that the typhoon is posing a triple threat of potentially deadly Category 4 hurricane-force winds, exceptional storm surge, and torrential downfall. 
The video that you're seeing right now is from a storm chaser, videographer from Earth Uncut TV, James Reynolds. He joins us now live by phone from Guam. James, uh, this video that we're showing right now that you took is remarkable. We can see obviously how strong the winds are. What are you seeing at the moment as the island is hitting the, as the eye of the storm is hitting the island? Well, it's been a rough day. Just since this morning, you, we really got a sense that there was a typhoon uh, bearing down on the island. And literally from this morning, the wind has just been picking up solidly all along until, uh, you know, about two, three hours ago, where it was, uh, you know, just sheets of rain, uh, strong winds flying, uh, throwing things through the air. So it's been... It's it's been a long day and the island isn't out of the woods yet because this typhoon is moving very slowly and it's going to be lashing, uh, you know, lashing us for, for many hours to come. Have things changed? You said many hours to come, but in terms of getting progressively worse or you think you've seen the worst of it, the worst of it? I'm I'm. I'm my, I'm, I'm struggling with a lack of data right now. You mentioned the power outages. That means that I can't look closely at the radar images that are coming out of the National Weather Service office uh, right now. But my impression is that as this typhoon starts to move away, uh, the conditions should start slowly improving. But the problem is this typhoon's moving very slowly. So that just means it's a long duration event of torrential rain, storm surge and strong winds. All right, James Reynolds, I, I know you're limited data. We do thank you for getting on the phone with us this morning. Keep us updated on what you're saying. And of course, above all, please make sure you're staying safe. Thank you, James. Also this overnight, an effort to bring religion literally bring into schools failing in the Republican-led Texas State House. A controversial bill would have made displaying copies of the Ten Commandments mandatory in classrooms. But House lawmakers did not meet that midnight deadline for a third and final passage of the measure. Rosa Flores is covering this live in Houston with more. Maybe not this time, but they could certainly try again, right? Next session. You're absolutely right, Poppy. But the headline here is that this bill is dead, at least for now. Now, lawmakers could get some creative CPR going before the end of the session. But it is a very uh, steep road ahead for them. But let's talk about what was in this bill. Now, this bill said that every classroom in the state of Texas shall have a copy, a poster, a frame, of the Ten Commandments displayed and that it had to be legible from every area of this classroom. Now, this is the state of Texas. So if there was a big, big classroom in the state to follow this law, it would have to be legible from every corner of that classroom. Now, the minimum size, according to this bill, would be 16 by 20 inch uh, poster or frame of the Ten Commandments. Now, if a classroom didn't have a Ten Commandments displayed and someone donated a copy, that classroom, uh, quote, must accept that copy of the Ten Commandments. Further, if a classroom still didn't have a copy of the Ten Commandments, then the school could use public funds to purchase a copy of the Ten Commandments. Now, if your head is spinning because of all of the complexities of this bill, which include questions about constitutionality and religious freedom and the separation of church and state, you're not alone. A lot of groups, Poppy, were very concerned about this bill for all of those reasons, including Christian religious groups that were raising questions about religious freedom and the the state imposing 
religion onto students and teachers, of course, in classrooms, in public schools in the state of Texas. But again, for now, this bill is dead. The end of the session is May 29th. And of course, you know, lawmakers could get creative. So we'll see. We'll keep monitoring. And we'll see if it does become law, if it's challenged and if it will go to the Supreme Court. This is a court that has been allowing more and more of that in recent years. Rosa, thank you. The man who's accused of intentionally driving a U-Haul truck into a security barrier outside the White House is now set to appear in federal court today. 19-year-old Cy Condula appeared in D.C. Superior Court yesterday. Court documents reveal that Condula told investigators he wanted to, quote, kill President Biden, overthrow the government, and put himself in power. Police say that after he crashed the truck Monday night, he did pull out a Nazi flag out of his backpack. You can see here that's a security barrier It's right outside the White House. We're also learning that he told investigators, quote, Nazis have a great history and he praised Hitler as a strong leader. Condula is now facing one federal charge for damaging government property, but he's facing several other charges in a D.C. court, including threatening to kill or harm a president, vice president or family member. He has not entered any pleas yet. He is being held without bail this morning. Time is running critically short to reach a debt limit agreement, and Speaker Kevin McCarthy's latest comment is not sitting well with the White House. Plus, a judge has now set the date for former President Trump's criminal trial here in New York. It's right in the middle of the Republican presidential primary season. One of Trump's attorneys will join us live here in studio to talk about that new date and more ahead. been asking for the White House to make a number of concessions. Are there any concessions that you're willing to make, and what are those concessions? We're going to raise the debt That's your concession. That's yeah. That was House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. This is a live look at Capitol Hill this morning. Last night, he was making those comments to CNN's Manu Raju and other reporters there. As Republicans won concession in the debt ceiling negotiations, he says is raising the debt ceiling. Lawmakers and President Biden only have eight days, just a little over a week, to reach a deal before the U.S. could potentially default on its debts, which would be catastrophic, according to most economic experts. McCarthy told reporters yesterday he is optimistic that they can meet that deadline, but they're not there yet. Some Republicans, in the meantime, are now suggesting that the U.S. may have more time before it actually runs out of cash to pay its bills. CNN's Lauren Fox is live on Capitol Hill this morning. Lauren, obviously these negotiations have been seesawing all over the place. One day you hear, uh, one minute you hear that they're going well and they've been positive, and the next it seems like they haven't come to any kind of agreement. What's the state of the negotiations this morning? Well, in some ways, Caitlin, this is a natural negotiation, right, between the White House and Capitol Hill. In other ways, the potential consequences here are so much more dire. Yesterday, you heard repeatedly from Republican negotiators Garrett Graves and Patrick McHenry that they still wanted to see the White House come back with a proposal that spent less money next year and the year after than this current year. And that is where the negotiations stand right now. Republicans insisting that spending cuts happen moving forward. The White House not quite there yet. And that is why these negotiations seem to be stuck in neutral right now, because both sides are really dug in. They met yesterday morning for several hours into the early afternoon. The expectation was perhaps the White House negotiators would come back to Capitol Hill. That never actually happened. Is that a sign potentially that things are breaking down? Potentially. It could also be a sign that this is the normal course of a negotiation. Look, the time is starting to really 
run short. It's going to take several days to move this through the House of Representatives. It's going to take several days to move it through the U.S. Senate. And the expectation was that hopefully a deal would be reached by the end of this week. If that doesn't happen, it's possible that House Republicans could go home for their recess and then just be called back if a deal is actually reached. But the message that would send to the markets, obviously a very, very scary one for economic experts who are watching this closely. Yeah, and scary to get that close to the deadline. But this deadline that we've been hearing from the Treasury Secretary, uh, basically June 1st, there's now some Republicans who are casting doubt on that, saying that maybe that's not actually the date. Is there any evidence that there would be more money to last longer than that June 1st deadline we've heard from the Treasury Secretary? Well, certainly you're starting to hear from some members of the Freedom Caucus and other conservatives that June 1st may not actually be the date, that even if you hit June 1st, perhaps it wouldn't be as cataclysmic as some economists have warned. Here's one of those Republicans to me yesterday, Bob Good. If we don't pass the bill, the Senate doesn't pass the bill, there's not some catastrophic date of June 1. You're already hearing rumblings that it might be July 1. Uh, there's not going to be some catastrophic, oh, we've hit the limit, look what's happened. And markets will get jittery. Markets go up and down based on the expectation of whether or not markets are going to go up and go down. So there's, there's not some big catastrophe to fear. And there, of course, was a question to Patrick McHenry, one of the leading Republican negotiators yesterday. Is June 1st the date? He said, look, I listened to Janet Yellen. When she says that the date is June 1st, that is the date. He's the guy in the room. He's one of the Republicans leading these talks. Obviously, what he says there really is what we should be listening to. Caitlin? We'll see what they say today. Lauren Fox, you're going to have a busy day. Keep us updated. Thank you. All right, let's bring in Chief Economist at Moody's Analytics. And I'm so glad that Lauren pointed out what Patrick McHenry, the Republican lawmaker in the middle of all this, said, because he praised Yellen, saying she has the most varied economic experience of any American. Yet a number of Republicans in the House are questioning her on this June 1st date. Here's some more of them. I don't believe that the first of the month is a real deadline. Like, I, I don't understand why we're not making Janet Yellen show her work. She'll extend it, but right now she's using June 1st. Everybody knows that's false. The fact is, we passed a bill that will raise the debt ceiling. The fact is, we're going to have cash in June. The fact is, we're not going to default on our, on our debt. That's just completely false. Uh, we've got the money to do it. So uh, everybody just needs to be patient. Mark Sandy, you're the chief economist at Moody's. What do you make of what they're saying? Uh, the secretary's right. Uh, the, Secretary Yellen. She is right. Uh, I've done my own calculation day by day okay. you know, to looking at tax revenue, looking at spending. And uh, June 1 is the earliest uh, when we could breach. The most likely day by my calculation is June the 8th. But there is a chance I could be wrong about that. And because it's, the tax revenues are uncertain, we don't know exactly how much tax revenue is going to come in, in every day. Uh, we, if we get on the other side of June 8th, then we have a, a bit of a, of a respite till the end of July. But uh, if I were in Congress thinking about this, I'd be planning for June 1. June 1. Because we get a, a number of tax receipts come in June 15th, you're saying. So that, that that's might right. help June tide us over. We get a lot of tax money coming in at June, on June 15th, and that buys you some time. 71% of Americans in this new polling we have say that not raising the debt limit would cause a crisis or major problems for the country. Can you just talk to Americans at home waking up, making breakfast for their kids, trying to get to work, who are scared? And they want to know what this means for them. Well, uh, everyone's going to get hurt. Uh, First off, everyone, everyone, uh, just 
just a matter of degree. Uh, the first thing that's going to happen is that financial markets are going to sell off, stock prices go down, interest rates rise. So if you have a 401k plan, uh, other pension assets are going to be worth a lot less. Uh, if you need to borrow money to buy a car or uh, get a mortgage, it's going to be harder to get that loan. And if you can get it, it's going to be at a higher interest rate. If you rely on the government for a check, uh, I'm a Social Security recipient. I, I, I'm in the military, uh, you know, and the government uh, is helping lots of different people in lots of different ways. They're going to get their money later. And then ultimately, the economy is going to sink into recession, right? And that means lost jobs. That means higher unemployment. Yeah. All our wages will be affected. And Neil Kashkari, the uh, president of the Minneapolis Federal Reserve, told us yesterday on the show that the Fed's tools to fight a recession, if we get there, are limited by the high inflation we're facing now. I also asked him about, you see more and more progressive, some lawmakers calling for abolishing the debt ceiling. And, and he didn't outright say he supports that, but he did say, I think it would be prudent once we get through this, to figure out why we do this to ourselves. President Biden has said consistently it would be, in his words, quote, irresponsible to abolish the debt ceiling. Do you think that would be irresponsible or is it more irresponsible for us to get to the brink? I think the debt ceiling is uh, counterproductive. It's not working. Uh, I mean, maybe at, some, at one point in time, historically, it was uh, a way to uh, come up with things to help our fiscal situation. Constrain spending. Yeah, uh, and it raised tax revenue. Yeah. I mean, we have a fiscal problem, and, and it's a very significant one. No, I'm, no argument. But to address that, we need both government spending restraint and we need additional tax revenue. But the debt limit isn't the way to accomplish it. I mean, even this debate we're having right now, we're talking about cutting discretionary spending. These are it, that's not where the problem is. That's not going to solve any problem. So you know, even this German drang that we're in the middle of isn't going to isn't going to help the problem. And Look what it's doing to confidence and sentiment. It's putting us on the edge of recession. If we breach, we're going to go into recession, and our fiscal problems are going to be even worse. The the um, the chorus of people calling for President Biden to invoke the Fourteenth Amendment is growing, largely among progressives. Biden uh, and Secretary Yellen have essentially said there's a lot of legal headaches there. We couldn't solve the problem in seven days or whatever we're facing. But I thought it was interesting that the U.S. Chamber of Commerce this week said that invoking the Fourteenth Amendment here. So would allow them, I guess, to unilaterally raise a debt ceiling would be just as, quote, economically calamitous as a default. Well, would it, it be it would be it would be tough. Uh, it, it would create a lot of chaos. Right. Because, look, I'm a, a, a bond investor and uh, the president just invoked the 14th. And of course, that's going to go all the way to the Supreme Court. Who knows when that's going to happen? It could take days. It could take weeks. And as an investor, I'm wondering, well, should I be buying a bond that's issued during that period? Hmm. You know, how's the Supreme Court going to rule on that? If they rule against the president, then what's that bond worth? Yeah. So it, will, it would create chaos. But I'd say this. I, I, I think that's a break glass kind of solution. Suppose we go into a breach, meaning the Treasury's not paying everybody, chaos is ensuing. Lawmakers still can't get it together. And, you know, the economy's evaporating at that point. Then it's a Hobson's choice, which, which is the worst bad choice. And the 14th Amendment may be the best bad choice to take. Best bad choice. Yep. Mark Zandi, hopefully we have you on next with better well, news. Well, hopefully not. Then, I you, mean, hopefully no, we like to have you, even if the world isn't coming okay, fair enough. economically to an end. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Kaylin. Yeah, hopefully I'm on to talk about other less catastrophic potentially issues. Also this morning, the former president's attorneys are now asking for a meeting with Attorney General Merrick Garland. We'll talk about why, what it could mean, and much more with another one of Trump's attorneys, Lena Haba. She's live here in studio right after this. 
New overnight, former President Trump's legal team has now requested a meeting with Attorney General Merrick Garland regarding the special counsel, Jack Smith, who is investigating a few things, but also Trump's possible mishandling of classified documents, also his efforts to over, overturn the election results of the 2020 election. Today, the special counsel, Jack Smith's office, is also set to receive a batch of documents from the National Archives, CNN is told. They are purportedly going to show that Trump and his top advisors knew the correct way to declassify documents while he was in office. In a separate case yesterday, the former President Trump appeared virtually before a judge here in New York. That's in the criminal case involving those hush money payments that were made to Stormy Daniels. A trial date has now been set for March 25th of next year, which falls right in the middle of the 2024 primaries. The former president has been charged by the Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg with 34 felony counts of falsifying business records with the intent to conceal illegal conduct related to his 2016 presidential campaign. We should note the former president has pleaded not guilty. The judge said yesterday Trump is free to defend himself and free to campaign, but warned he is not allowed to disclose evidence presented to him and his legal team ahead of that trial. Joining us now to talk about this and more, one of former President Trump's attorneys, Alina Haba. Thank you so much for being here. Obviously, that trial date falling in March 25th is right in the middle of the campaign season. You know it's not easy to prepare for a trial. It takes a lot of time. Is there a concern that it's going to cut into his campaigning? Absolutely. I mean, it has to cut into his campaigning. And his opinion is that's by design. Um, I think we've seen with a lot of the cases, and as, as we spoke about, I handle a lot of New York cases, there's been this same theme where his cases seem to get fast-tracked, and there's concern that that's intentional. Um, I'd, I'd like to think as a lawyer that, that I trust the judicial system and that people can be impartial, but I've seen that sometimes that doesn't always happen, and we never want politics to get into the courtroom, right? So. I, I think it's unfair that it's in the middle of election season. I would like to see him get through whatever he needs to get through as the leading candidate for the GOP and then move forward. And the judge seemed to acknowledge that yesterday. I mean, he spent most of that hearing talking about what Trump can and cannot publicly say about this, especially as they are starting to get the evidence that they that the prosecutors have here. Is he going to abide by that protective order? Absolutely. Um, you know, President Trump has always abided by any order. He's never been uh, sanctioned by a judge for not listening to the rules. And, and myself, having been his attorney on numerous cases, I can tell you that he respects the court's orders. Does he think that he's always being treated fairly? No, absolutely not. Do I think so? No, absolutely not. But he, he does not have no respect for the law. He respects the law. He respects the judges. But he wants to see fairness come back to this country. But he's been attacking the judge, in this case, the one who was essentially explaining to him what his rights are yesterday, Judge Juan Marchand. Is he going to lay off the attacks on that judge now going forward? You know, I think you have to put yourself in his shoes, right? He is not only a human being, a citizen. He's a political candidate that has a reputation as not just a real estate tycoon, but an incredible president and also uh, a politician. So when you see these judges that somehow get the same cases, you can't think that's a coincidence. Mershon had the Weisselberg case. Um, and that was a very unfair case, in my opinion. That was something that if you were John Doe, maybe you would have just gotten a slap on the wrist, paid a fine and moved on. Somehow he gets Marshawn again. You can't help but think that there is something going on there. So I think my client is right to be angry. Um, I think that he is, has a First Amendment right to speak, just like you do, just like I do. And uh, he's going to use it to the extent he can within the court's order. 
within the court's order is an important part of that. I mean, he's right. referred to him as this Trump-hating judge with no evidence that he is a Trump-hating judge. But this comes as E. Jean Carroll and her lawsuit, which is separate from this, but I should note, following the CNN town hall and the comments that Trump made about her there is now amending that lawsuit to add more money to that. Is, he, is there not a concern within the legal team that what he says is what's getting him in more trouble here, that he's going and attacking her the day after you know, he's found guilty for, or that, excuse me, that he's found civilly liable for defaming her and sexually abusing her. So, so let's talk about that. I'm glad you brought it up. Um, as a candidate, part of your job and part, as a president, part of your job is to address people that bring claims as Bill Clinton had to address, right? He didn't do this. So we have the court say, and now we have a jury that said he did not rape her. Let's not forget that. Um, and he is then speaking to a person who is falsely accusing him of something that is heinous. And nobody is more sympathetic than I am to sexual assault victims, rape victims. But I'm confused on how a jury could have gotten it so wrong. They say you don't rape someone, but it's sexual abuse. And then you defame somebody for saying, I didn't rape her when they said he didn't. And they found he didn't. So the fact that she's going to amend it, to be honest with you, Caitlin, and and this is aside from my my sympathy to, to real victims, tells me what her motives are. And the fact that she's trying to amend a complaint from 2018 because she wants to change the terms from rape to sexual assault now, you're not allowed to retrofit cases. That's not how this goes. And I can't uh, agree with it. I'm going to fight it vehemently. And I think it's wrong. And I think he has a right to say, it's wrong. I didn't do it. And what she's doing is wrong. And it's a shame to real victims. Honestly, it's a shame to real but victims. It's, well, it's civilly liable for sexual abuse. But the idea that he's found that he defamed her and then he goes out the next day and continues to attack her, not just simply defending himself. He's going after her, calling it a con job, a hoax. Those were the comments he had made mm-hmm. online. I mean, is there not advice in the legal team that talking about it more only hurts him more is clearly evident here. He's a public person and he has a right to speak, especially when somebody says publicly and she did the same. And frankly, she went on TV and said, he raped me. Well, that's to me the most offensive thing you could possibly say. I know Donald Trump very well. And you know Donald Trump. He, he is a kind person. Whatever he projects when he's angry, he's a candidate being attacked. He's under siege at all times. This is a man who only knows how to operate and has operated this country amazingly well under siege at all times. And, and I think he's outraged and he has a right to be and he has a First Amendment right to speak and say to somebody, this is a lie. I didn't do it. And if somebody's going to keep suing him, we're just going to fight back as well. Well, that's his defense. But it was a jury of nine people that found him civilly liable of this. But I want to ask you about this new letter. that. But but before you go there, if that's our litmus test, we have a New York jury, then you must also believe that O.J. Simpson wasn't guilty. I mean, sometimes the juries get it wrong. And here they did get it right that he didn't rape her. But somehow he defames her when he says, I didn't rape her. It doesn't make sense. And we'll take it up on appeal. I know you're appealing it, but they did find him civilly liable. I mean, it's a a jury of nine people. I believe it was six women, three men. Uh, that found this. But I want to talk about this letter from two other attorneys on the former president's legal team that they sent last night or they sent yesterday requesting a meeting with the attorney general Merrick Garland to talk about the special counsel's investigation. I'm assuming it's the documents investigation. Do they want to meet with the attorney general or do they want to meet with the special counsel Jack Smith here? I'm not part of that team, so I'm actually not sure what the intent was there. I, I have no idea. Uh, the assumption is that it means they believe they could be prepared to have an indictment. Yeah, I, I, look, I, I'm not going to assume. I, I'll tell you one thing. 
what I've seen with the weaponization in the justice system, what I've seen with what came out with the Durham report, what came out with something that I personally litigated, and I've seen this, and, and we, have, we can't deny the facts that there is a dual system of justice. There's a little bit of, not a little bit, there's a lot of selective prosecution. And I, I can't speak to that case in particular, but I can tell you as his attorney, as somebody who, who does see how he's treated differently than a lot of my other clients, and I have other high-profile clients, I don't see this. So whatever it is, on any of these cases. I think the theme is that we need to clean up the justice system. We need to clean up politically motivated judges. And we need to say, okay, there's a court system in place. There's a justice system in place to protect the American people. And I know that that's what Donald Trump wants to do, to come in, clean it up, and get this back to the right track. Because you and I being able to sit here today is exactly what the country wants. They want to see us be able to be on different sides of the coin, disagree. But at the end of the day, nobody should be treated differently than anybody else. And I think that he is. Yeah, well, I would say I'm a neutral party in this. But when it comes to the, the documents, and there is also a special counsel investigating Biden's documents as well. So when you argue there's a dual system of justice here, that's from Attorney General Merrick Garland, who appointed that as well. Is there a sense inside the legal team that something has happened that has that prompted the ask for this meeting? I, I have no, I truly, when I tell you I'm not on that case, my hands are full up here with Letitia James and some of my other lawsuits. But. So no sense from your end of whether this means that you, the Trump legal team believes that the special counsel's investigation pertaining to the documents is coming to an no, end? No, I have, I have no sense. My knowledge is the same as you, unfortunately. I have no inside baseball knowledge on that. I want to ask you about something else that's happening inside the Trump legal team, because Tim Parlatori, who was a member of it, just recently departed. He cited internal issues, saying it didn't have anything to do with the investigation. He sat down with CNN's Paula Reid, and this is how he explained why he left. The real reason is because there are certain individuals that made defending the president much harder than it needed to be. Uh, in particular, there's one individual who works for him, uh, Boris Epstein, who had really done everything he could to try to block us, to prevent us from doing what we could uh, to, to defend the president. In my opinion, he was not very honest with us or with the client on certain things. Uh, there were certain things like the searches that he had attempted to interfere with. What's your sense of, what was your reaction to what Tim Parlatori said there? I thought that was very unprofessional. Um, I think that as anybody in a workplace, you have type A personalities. We're all lawyers and not everybody's always going to get along. I think that was a last claim to fame. He had exited and, and he had been in a very high profile position. And uh, I can tell you that we've seen this happen time and time again. People leave Trump world and they try and come out with stories, their last hurrah, for, for instance. And, and I, I don't agree with it. I, I was disappointed by, by what he said. I, I, I don't know that to be the case. And um, I think that was quite honestly, very unprofessional. You said you don't agree with it. So you don't have any, do you have any interactions with Boris or anything like of that? Of course. He was interfering in searches. Though? Oh, no. I mean, first of all, I'm not involved in any of that. But I can tell you that um, Boris is is a confidant and, and somebody who works with the with PAC and is doing his job like everybody else. And again, people are just not always going to get along in any job. I'm sure there's people here that you don't get along with. But if that was the case, I, I think that was um, ridiculous and, and an inappropriate kind of butthurt move, to say the least. Does the infighting on the legal team affect the, the defenses of, the, of your client? I have never seen infighting. Um, I get along. You've amazing. never seen infighting? Not on the in legal my team? legal team. No, my team, we get along great. We're friends. And honestly, we're all in it together. And we all have different opinions. And we 
peacefully and, and correctly go at it to try and figure out what the best legal strategy is for the president. Um, that's what lawyers do. Um, so, no, I'm sorry. I haven't seen that. But Clearly among some members there is. Alina Haba, thank you for your time this morning. Thanks thank for you. Us here on set. Thank you. Really important conversation. Also this this morning, brand new polling just released about Americans' disapproval of the Supreme Court. The Chief Justice John Roberts seeks to assure the public about the court's ethics. We'll tell you what he said last night. And in health this morning, for most adults, getting a colonoscopy is recommended at age 45. But a steady uptick in colon cancer among young adults is prompting some doctors and patients to start screening a lot earlier than officially recommended. While the absolute risk is low for young people younger than 45, the American Cancer Society says incident rate is up 55 percent since the 1990s. There are counterarguments for screening at younger ages. It could lead to some false positives, unnecessary care, increased insurance costs. But the overall argument is that earlier screenings have saved lives. We'll be right back. All right, some new numbers here that were just released this morning. A new Marquette Law School poll national survey finds that only 41 percent of adults approve of the way that the Supreme Court is doing its job, while 59 percent disapprove. That's a six percentage point drop from January. Obviously, we've seen a slew of stories that have happened since then. Last night, the Chief Justice John Roberts addressed those concerns. CNN's Ariane DeVoe is tracking this and joins us now. Ariane, obviously, I'm assuming he's trying to quell some of the concerns that people have about the ethics of the Supreme Court and whether or not the justices can be held to accountability for for what they do. Right. He is making clear that he is hearing this criticism about ethics. And it all comes, of course, as Justice Clarence Thomas, it was revealed that he had received those lavish trips from a GOP donor and never disclosed him on his uh, financial disclosure forms. But Congress is really upping the pressure here against the Supreme Court. Those Democrats are saying, look, we need you to adopt a code of ethics that is specific to the justices. And they're suggesting that if the court doesn't act, then Congress will step in and do so. And Chief Justice John Roberts last night, he was receiving a medal for an award, but he seemed to address that specifically. Take a listen to what he said. We are continuing to look at things we can do to give practical effect to that commitment. And I am confident there are ways to do that that are consistent with our status as an independent branch of government under the Constitution's separation of powers. And what's interesting there is that Roberts is saying, look, we hear you. We're going to do something more. But here's what's important. He's also kind of telling Congress, back off. This is separation of powers. If we have problems within our branch of government, we'll fix them ourselves. That was the message that he was sending last night in that speech. And also, I I noticed that no offering of specifics there of what it was that they would do uh, better. Ariane DeVogue, thank you. Thanks. Well, a sobering new warning on artificial intelligence and war. Without proper guardrails, AI and autonomous weapons could be as dangerous as nuclear weapons. That is the argument made this morning by Democratic Congressman Seth Moulton. He is a Marine veteran with four tours of combat experience in Iraq. And this is what he writes this morning in the Boston Globe. AI at its worst could usher in an era of warfare more dangerous than anything we've seen before. More dangerous, not just for America, but for humanity itself. He also sees an upside to it. We'll get into that. And he joins me now. Good morning. Good morning. Good you, to see you. You begin. Good to see you, too. You open this op-ed, um, Congressman, talking about a little boy and the image that you will never forget in 2003, uh, seeing him perish. 
uh, as you're on the battlefield. And you talk about your concern with AI, but also the fact that AI could maybe have saved that boy and his family's life. What do you want to see? He was a civilian casualty uh, in the early stages of the Iraq war. And at its best, AI will help prevent civilian casualties like that. Maybe an AI-enabled weapon could have told uh, the Marines uh, that we're doing the right thing according to their uh, orders. They were trying to stop a car that was racing towards their position. But maybe AI could have, could have told them that this is not a car full of bombs and, or terrorists. It's a car <clears throat> with a little boy. But the problem, of course, is that AI at its worst could just kill everything in its path. And you know, if you imagine, we're not that far away from, from literally killer robots, from, uh, from weapon systems that operate completely on their own. And if you were to give one of those weapon systems to Putin today and say, you know, you can use this and it's going to try hard not to kill civilians, it's going to try hard to limit collateral damage, but just flip this switch and it will kill everything in its path, what do you think Putin would do in Ukraine? He's already obliterating Ukrainian cities. So that's why this is so dangerous. It's that our adversaries who don't have the same morals that we do could use this to its extremes. That's dangerous for our troops, and it's literally, it's literally dangerous for humanity. Did you write this because you think the Pentagon is not paying enough attention to it? A hundred percent. I co-authored a report called the Future Defense Task Force. It was a bipartisan report back in 2020, so three years ago, where we told the Pentagon, you've got to get on top of this. And not, not only on top, but you've got to get ahead of this. If America doesn't get ahead, we're not going to have the leverage to set the international rules, the norms, like the AI Geneva Conventions yeah. for how these weapon systems are used. Look, you, and, and as you make the argument for a Geneva Convention-style how we address AI in warfare. You talk about the fact that it has no moral compass, and that is the crux of the problem here. Congressman, I do want to also move on to the debt ceiling um, because we have new polling out this morning that is really interesting because it shows that 60 percent of Americans say Congress should only raise a debt ceiling with spending cuts, and that includes 58 percent of independents. Is that a rejection of the Biden position, of many Democrats' position that you got to do it cleanly. Look, there are different polls out there. I saw a poll literally yesterday that said the opposite, that Americans want to raise a debt ceiling first and then discuss spending cuts. All right, but the but reality to, be, is that to this, be fair, this is a pretty broad CNN poll, and it includes independence too. Look, the, the problem is that we've already spent this money. I mean, I mean, this is like going you know, to, to, to your credit card company after you've spent all the cash and saying, you know what, I don't want to pay my credit card bill this month. I'm just going to negotiate it. That's the Republican position. Democrats, for years, have voted to raise the debt ceiling. I mean, Congress raised the debt ceiling under President Trump to pay for his tax cuts, even though a lot of us, myself included, disagreed with those tax cuts for the wealthy. So I'm happy to have a debate about spending, but you do that during the appropriations process. You don't hold the economy hostage. Literally seven million jobs that would be lost across America if the Republicans succeed in pushing us over a cliff. Quickly, before we move on to mental health, there's one potential off-ramp here, and that's known as a discharge petition. But you've signed on to that, uh, a letter about that. You need, you need five Republicans to get there. Do, do you have any? We're we're close. We don't have any yet, but we okay. do have some who are interested in, in doing the right thing for the country. We saw, moving to mental health, we saw the U.S. Surgeon General, uh, Vivek Morthy, 
yesterday announced to the world that social media for youth is a profound risk of harm for kids. I will never forget the interview you did with our Jake Tapper in 2019 telling the world about your mental health struggles and PTSD. Here's a reminder of that. After I got back from the war, uh, there were times when I woke up with cold sweats, when I um, you know, had, had flashbacks, would, would have bad dreams. Um, there were times when I just couldn't get through a day without thinking about some of the experiences that I went through. And now you have introduced legislation to declare a national youth mental health crisis. That on top of what the U.S. Surgeon General just announced. If you can get that legislation through, what would it change? What it's going to do is pay, put way more attention on actually addressing this crisis. It means more counselors in our schools. It means mental health screenings uh, for our kids. Uh, it means having a serious debate about whether we should limit social media access for our children. I mean, what I was describing in that interview was post-traumatic stress after being in horrific combat as an infantry officer in Iraq. And yet we have millions of American kids who have major mental health problems yeah. just because they're looking at social media. We've got to be willing to do something about this. And we just put on the screen 988 that is the national crisis hotline that still a lot of Americans don't know they have and is available for everyone. Congressman Seth Moulton, thank you for caring about this issue. Thank you. CNN This Morning continues right now. But is it worth the fight? Do I have the courage? Is it worth the sacrifice? America has been worth it every single time. Top of the hour, big day in politics. Yeah, if you're wondering what that was, it's something that's been basically months in the making. But yes. there are big questions about whether or not it will help his numbers, what it looks like going forward. Yeah, we're talking about Ron DeSantis. What you just saw was a clip of a hype video for him ahead of his big announcement tonight. It's just one of the big stories we'll be watching today. Yeah, a lot of big stories. Obviously, the Florida governor is set to announce that he is running for president. Here's how he's doing it on Twitter with Elon Musk. We have new CNN reporting about how one of his biggest challengers, if not his biggest challenger, former President Trump, is planning to undercut DeSantis's campaign launch. Also, speaking of Trump, the special counsel that is investigating the former president is about to get some crucial documents from the National Archives today. They could end up potentially being key evidence in his probe. And the man accused of ramming the barricades right near the White House and threatening to kill the president will appear in court. New details about what the suspect said after the crash. Also, we're keeping a very close eye this morning on Guam, the island getting slammed by one of the most devastating storms we've seen there in decades. And today marks one year, hard to believe it, since that mass shooting in Uvalde that left 19 elementary school children and two teachers dead. President Biden is planning to address the anniversary, calling for an end to the gun violence epidemic happening in America. This hour of CNN This Morning starts right now. Today's today, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis will officially launch his presidential race. We're told he's going to make that announcement tonight during a discussion on Twitter 
with Elon Musk. A source tells CNN former President Trump and his allies have been coordinating a plan to undermine DeSantis's campaign launch. It includes a social media blitz by conservative commentators and Trump surrogates appearing in Miami, where DeSantis is set to begin meeting with donors today. Now, Trump has already been attacking DeSantis. You know that relentlessly now for months. The governor is widely considered to be Trump's toughest competition for the GOP presidential nomination. But DeSantis has been slipping in the polls recently leading up to the launch of his campaign. So we have team coverage on this, Steve Contorno, following all things Camp DeSantis in Miami. Uh, Kristen Holmes is following all things Trump. So let's start with you, Steve. Today's the day. It is, and this is uh, what we've been waiting for for months now. There's been this long, slow rollout of uh, Ron DeSantis' campaign. He's done a book, book launch. He's done a national tour. He's traveled the country. He's traveled internationally. He signed a bunch of bills. He's put together this agenda that he's going to run on. And now today is a day where he will officially announce he is running for president. He will do so on Twitter, as you mentioned, which is a very unconventional way to introduce yourself as a presidential candidate. Most, most of the time we see candidates do these kind of announcements in their hometown or somewhere else of political significance. But he will be joining Elon Musk in a Twitter Spaces chat. We've been told this will be unscripted and there will be a Q&A and an opportunity to sort of engage with the audience. Uh, and then from there, DeSantis will speak on Fox News later tonight. As you mentioned, he's meeting with donors tomorrow and then he will start hitting the campaign trail for this, uh, this challenge to Donald Trump in an attempt to wrestle the future of the GOP from the former president. And of course, the former president is the GOP frontrunner in this right now. Kristen, you know as well as I do that he has been attacking DeSantis long before this announcement became official today. How are they planning to respond today specifically, though? Yeah, that's right, Caitlin. And even this morning, he's already been posting on his social media site about Ron DeSantis. It clearly is living rent-free in his mind. And this is really what he and his team have been most focused on. As you said, he is likely his chief rival. And part of this has been a plan that they've been working on really for months, how to get the oxygen away from Ron DeSantis and put it back with Trump, which is something that we know Trump is markedly good at. Now, part of this will involve a rollout of videos, including one of Trump looking directly at the camera addressing DeSantis's candidacy. Another part of the plan, as Poppy mentioned, is going to be this social media blitz. Something that Trump's team has spent a lot of time focusing on is getting these conservative commentators with huge followings to back the former president. They've brought them down to Mar-a-Lago. They've flown them on the plane uh, with the former president to campaign events. They were likely to try to tap into that network today. So things that we're looking at, surrogates will be hitting the airwaves as well. They are going to be attacking DeSantis on a number of different policies, including when he was in Congress, as well as since he's been governor. That's reforming entitlement programs, trade policy, China, DeSantis's COVID-19 response, which we know is something that Trump advisors themselves are a little bit concerned that Trump is vulnerable on. They are taking this very seriously. Those polls, of course, recently showing Trump with a huge lead, but that is not something they are taking for granted. And I can't find one Trump advisor who will tell me that this is over. Definitely far from over, and we'll see what the fundraising today looks like as well. Kristen Holmes, Steve Contorno, thank you both. Also this morning, I mean, this is the other big story today, Huge. what's happening in Washington, as we've seen this deadlock that's been happening. The White House and House Republicans have just eight days left to reach a deal to raise the debt ceiling as that deadline to avert what economists say would be a catastrophic default is now rapidly approaching. After Speaker Kevin McCarthy and President Biden both hailed productive negotiations 
Things seem to change as McCarthy reportedly wrinkled the White House when he said there's still only one concession he's willing to make. You've been asking for the White House to make a number of concessions. Are there any concessions that you're willing to make, and what are those concessions? We're going to raise the debt That's your concession. That's yeah. That. That comment saying that that was his only concession outraged Democrats who say they believe McCarthy is refusing to compromise as the White House has been seeking a deal in good faith. So as these negotiations continue, hopefully in the right direction, conservative hardliners in Congress are growing skeptical about Janet Yellen's June 1st deadline. Listen. I don't believe that the first of the month is a real deadline. Like, I, I don't understand why we're not making Janet Yellen show her work. She'll extend it, but right now she's using June 1st. Nobody, everybody knows that's false. The fact is, we passed a bill that will raise the debt ceiling. The fact is, we're going to have cash in June. The fact is, we're not going to default on our, on our debt. That's just completely false. Uh, we've got the money to do it. So uh, everybody just needs to be patient. So that's what they think. What are the facts? How firm is the June 1st date? CNN anchor and chief business correspondent Christine Romans is here to help answer that question. Help. Help. Okay. <laughs> Let's follow the money, shall we? Uh, I'll show the work for you here. Um, June 1st, Janet Yellen's earliest estimate. You just heard from Mark Zandi at Moody's and many others who say there's no reason to disagree with her. That's the earliest possible date that the U.S. bank account goes below a zero. Moody's has a, has a scenario that's more like uh, June 8th because of tax receipts that could be coming in and maybe some more uh, moving of money around that the Treasury can do until then. The best case scenario, August 8th. So what's the problem here? Uh, we are running out of money uh, pretty quickly. A year ago, that cash balance was more like 800 to 900 billion. Right now it's sitting at 68 billion. And 68 billion, keep that in the back of your mind. June 1st, we have a Medicare uh, payment of 47 billion. And on the second, we have a 25 billion Social Security uh, uh, payment. That's 72 billion. I can add more here. We also have another two billion for Medicaid and we have another 12 billion for veterans benefits. All of that will be going out the door the very first two days of the month. So that's the kind of math that we're facing here. You're going to get some tax receipts on the 15th, but that's on the 15th. That's why so many people are worried about that first week uh, in June, you guys. About what Moody's, uh, which is, you know, one of the, the, the biggest rating agencies in, in the world, what their, their sort of best case scenario is August here? How do they get to that? Let's, let's walk to that August number. So you're talking about money coming in, right? So pass go on June 15th. On June 15th, you've got about $79 billion coming in uh, in tax revenues. We don't know for sure because California, Alabama, Georgia tax collection there has been delayed because of uh, bad weather and natural disasters. You've got corporate money coming in. So maybe that gives you a chance to get to June 30th. What happens on June 30th? Well, there are more extraordinary measures the Treasury Secretary can do if you can get that long. And that is suspending investments into some federal retirement accounts. That could free up uh, maybe 100 45 billion dollars but on June 30th you have 98 billion in payments due including 12 billion in interest you cannot miss that payment so that's how you could squeak by by finding every nickel in the couch cushions until you get there if everything absolutely goes right maybe maybe there's a 1% chance you could get to early August this is why the June 1st deadline is so important it is prudent to plan for running out of money at that time. That's when the Treasury has to decide whether to prioritize paying its bills, whether to delay paying Social Security recipients, whether to delay paying military contractors, maybe who's going to feel the pain first. Those are the kinds of questions we're asking in the largest economy in the world. 
obviously what we're watching in Washington is not just about these numbers, but also the political blame game. Uh, what Biden said at his press conference in Japan was, would he be blamed on the merits? He doesn't believe he should, but maybe on the politics. And we also have new numbers, Christine, on how Americans see this, what they want to happen in Washington. Yeah, and this actually was surprising to me. First of all, I was really surprised that 15% of people said, don't raise <laughs> the debt ceiling, allow a default. Those are the ultimate, I guess, contrarians of the world who, uh, who, who want to see the U.S. economy go in smoke. But 60% said, only raise the debt ceiling if there are spending cuts. I think that shows that the public is aware that a debt and deficits long term are a concern for the United States of America. But I would make this point that I've been making for some time. The debt ceiling is not an instrument of fiscal discipline. The budgeting process and the ballot box, quite frankly, are where those decisions are, are made. This is the least efficient way to address debt and deficits is by not raising the debt ceiling or tying spending cuts to the debt ceiling. You know, the big drivers of the nation's debt are not even what they're talking about. Social Security, Medicare, uh, net interest on the debt and tax receipts that are too low. So they're, they're not talking about the real things that will fix uh, the, the debt and deficit problem. Mm -hmm. Christine, that was fascinating. Thank you. Thank you. You're very welcome. Much. I hope you can take that Monopoly board to Washington. <laughs> it's nice, right? Really, it's great. And they need to collect more than $200 after they pass go, by the way. Thank go you. Go straight to jail, man. <laughs> oh, gosh. And we'll see what they decide there. Also, we are getting some new updates this morning. And to what happened yesterday, this scene here, a U-Haul truck that crashed intentionally, according to the authorities. It was being driven by a 19-year-old. This 19-year-old reportedly, as you can see here, drove this truck into a security barrier near the White House. And that 19-year-old is now set to appear in federal court today. Prosecutors say that Saeed Kandula told officers that he aimed to, quote, get to the White House, seize power, and be put in charge of the nation. And that he was also, quote, prepared to kill the president and would hurt anyone that stood in his way. Police say that after he crashed, he pulled a Nazi flag out of his backpack later telling investigators that Nazis have a great history. He also praised Hitler, apparently, for being a, quote, strong leader. Candula, as you can see here, says he had been planning the attack for six months and flew to Washington from St. Louis earlier that evening. This just in, police in Virginia arresting a man for having firearms on preschool property. We'll tell you what we know ahead. Also in South Carolina, the Senate there in the state has just passed a bill that would ban most abortions after just six weeks. We'll speak to a Republican lawmaker who has been fighting that bill next. South Carolina now poised to become the latest state to ban abortion after just six weeks. The state Senate voted yesterday to ban most abortions after early cardiac activity is detected. That can be as early as six weeks before many women even know that they're pregnant. The bill offers very few exceptions, including fatal fetal anomalies like heart and brain defects and the health and the life of the mother. It would also make exceptions up to 12 weeks for cases of rape or incest. A filibuster of five women who have now come to be known as the sister senators tried but ultimately failed to block the measure. Men are 100 percent responsible for pregnancy. Men are fertile 100 percent of the time. So it's time for men in this chamber and the ones across that hall and all across the state of South Carolina to take some ejaculation responsibility. We in the South Carolina legislature are not God. We do not have the right to make decisions for someone else. 
it bothers me that it has been admitted in this chamber and acknowledged that what we are doing here today is going to not do away with illegal abortions. It is going to cause illegal abortions. And so, women, everybody, when you look back years from now and your teenagers end up dying because they have gone to get an illegal abortion because they didn't know they were pregnant at six weeks, it is our fault. That bill now heads to the desk of Republican Governor Henry McMaster, who has said he would sign it into law as soon as possible. Joining us now is one of South Carolina's sister senators that you just heard from there, Republican State Senator Sandy Sen. And good morning. We, we talked about this last week. You were saying it was going to basically be a nail biter to see if your male colleagues stood with you and the other women on this. What's your reaction waking up this morning, knowing that the governor is planning to sign this into law as soon as he can? Well, I mean, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't disappointed. Actually, it came down to one male. And, you know, I'm thankful that they stood with us before. Um, but basically, at the last minute, he he caved. And um, and when he did, the other two went with him. So that, that left us with just five. I can tell you, we would certainly be a lot more powerful if we could elect just three more women. Uh, with three more women... Um, this whole situation would have turned out a lot differently. Yeah, and I know you were, you and your other colleagues are wearing buttons talking about electing more women yesterday. You referenced that vote there. That was from Senator uh, Tom Davis, who ultimately was the reason this passed yesterday. Do you have a message yes. for the for the governor is, this morning on, on this bill? Um, I won't be able to convince the governor. He's he's you know, I don't fault true believers um, there are a lot of men in the chamber who just are true believers. They think that this is the way to go. Um, but I do fault moderates and those who are basically making trades and doing whatever they're going to do or just trying to save what they think is maybe stove off a primary. I, I do fault them because they know better. They have children. Um, they've even spoken of their children before and how they don't want their daughters to uh, be in situations like this, and yet then they turned around and voted for it. But the bottom line is, is um, I can't just keep licking my wounds. I'm going to have to get spring back in my step and hope that um, basically I have to focus toward getting more uh, female colleagues elected. And I'm from Alabama. I know what the abortion access looks like in the South. South Carolina was one of the last remaining states where women could go and have access to abortions. What is your message right. to women this morning? That I'm very sorry that we disappointed you, but we tried. I, I can tell this is this is emotional and personal for you. It is. But anyway, like I said, we've got it. We got to get it back together, and we will. Um, we're all five meeting here in about the next hour and coming up with some game plans. We were very heartened to see all of the support in the lobby. I'm very thankful to see so much Republican support. Um, I cannot tell you how uh, it's just overwhelming. I had a lady from Ireland write me today who was in a she is a Republican, though she's originally American. And there are just so many people that have reached out. And so giving us that kind of encouragement is really needed. You're a Republican. And as part of this, you know, you banded together with your other female colleagues, some of who are Democrats, some who are independents in this. But given how widespread the abortion discussion has been on a national level, 
Did, did things like what happened in South Carolina yesterday hurt Republicans ultimately, you think? Yes, yes, absolutely it does. And I don't understand why my colleagues don't see that. I think that just for so long they have beaten that, oh, um, pro-life mantra. And we are all pro-life, uh, but they've, they've taken it too far. And I really feel sorry for the women in Florida. They're now going to have to, you know, South Carolina was, and I don't want our state to be an abortion destination, but, but we're putting women in the Southeast in a total bind. If you don't have money to fly, or a lot of money and time for gas to go all the way up the East Coast, then, you know, you're just in trouble. And I think about the young, young uh, victims, at, you know, of rape and incest or, you know, those that just had boyfriends and, and got in trouble. I feel so sorry for them because I think they need a little bit of time. I don't, you know, they don't need a lot of time. I think they need to make up their mind. But I certainly would have thought that first trimester would have been a better option than where we are now. State Senator Sandy Sen, thank you for your time this morning. Thank you. I think she brings up such an important issue that um, that Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the late justice, said years ago, which is to not have access always um, disproportionately affects poor women. And that's what she's talking about there is if you don't have the money to go to another state, this affects you more. And we've talked to her. We had her on just last week. We've talked to her a bunch during this, but also she and the other sister senators have been yes. interviewed multiple times. But, I mean, you see there, she, she had tears in her eyes as she was talking about this. It's incredibly personal for them. She feels like she let, you know, many of their constituents down. And they faced a lot of backlash over this. I should also note they fought bill and fought, fought yep. a bill, fought a bill, fought a bill. They had protesters. They had threats, threats to primary That's them right. from their colleagues. Yeah. That's right. Great interview. Also, this just in. We're learning that police arrested a man with weapons in his car. They arrested him for trespassing in a Virginia preschool. The Fairfax County Police released this photo Look at those weapons showing what they say they found during the search of the car. The large weapon at the top is an AK-47. Athena Jones, our colleague, has been following all of this at a preschool. It's, it's truly frightening. This is uh, information coming directly from the Fairfax County Police. They tweeted out that photo and they said this happened yesterday, but they're just now tweeting it out this morning. This a man was from Florida, 32 years old. Uh, he was found uh, trespassing on preschool grounds in McLean, Virginia. That is only about a mile away from the CIA. This man, his name is Eric Sando, said that he was he was he told police he was headed to the CIA. And so Fairfax County Police, they uh, arrested him, they detained him, executed a search warrant on his car. And that is when they found those weapons. You can see an AK-47, a smaller handgun and tons of ammunition. Uh, truly, truly frightening here uh, to know this man really was only a few minutes from the CIA, but also he was on the grounds of a preschool uh, and given you know the, the, the number of terrible uh, gun violence incidents in America over the years, this is just truly chilling. Poppy, Caitlin. Athena, thank you for the update, but chilling. Yeah. Let us know what we hear from the authorities. It's been one of those days that is seared into the minds of so many Americans, certainly mine. One year ago today is when a gunman entered Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, and changed the lives of so many, killing ultimately 19 children and two of their teachers. Texas Governor Greg Abbott is asking for all flags to be flown at half-staff today and has issued a statewide call for Texans to take part in a moment of silence. And this afternoon, President Biden will deliver remarks from the White House Grand Staircase to remember all of those lives lost and to reiterate his call for congressional leadership to stop gun violence. Shimon Porcupine joins us from Uvalde. Shimon, 
You have been at the center of trying to get answers for these families about the response and lack of response to save these children's lives. And I can't imagine how hard it is for you to be there today with still so many unanswered questions. But it is an important day to mark. No, it certainly is. And, and I think this is a day that many of the family members here, you know, have been dreading, um, have said that it's going to be a tough day, a day where it brings them back to what happened here a year ago. And part of what makes it so difficult for them is that they haven't had any kind of closure. So many questions still remain. So much of the accountability that should have already occurred has not occurred. Uh, and at every turn, they're just stonewalled or they're told we're still investigating and we still don't have answers for you. And just a couple of days ago, some of the family members of the children who died, the parents and other family members came here to go inside the school for the first time since this happened. And they described just a very sterile kind of scene. Much of the rooms have been cleaned out. A lot of the desks are gone in many of the places in these rooms where their kids took their last breaths, they were able to stand there and just think about their kids and what their kids went through. Uh, they still don't exactly know what happened in those moments. But for today, many of them, it'll be a way to have some unity where we don't see that in this community. This is a community that is very much divided over what should be, what people should be doing, whether or not to move on, whether or not to keep remembering this. So for many of the family members, certainly this is gonna be a day where they're gonna to try to have some kind of um, moment together, kind of reflect on their loved ones and those that they've lost. But obviously moving on and having any kind of closure, we're, we're nowhere, nowhere near that. Yeah, nowhere near that. I mean, it's just, it's hard to see this and also to look at the divisions that happened because of this but are still so deep in that community. Shimon, I know you'll be there all day. You've been covering this closely and, and talking to these families, getting answers for them. Thank you, Shimon. Thank you. And we'll be right back after this. Tonight, the Republican field will expand by one when Florida Governor Ron DeSantis announces his bid for the 2024 Republican nomination. It's going to be a very unconventional launch. He's expected to have a live conversation with Elon Musk on Twitter spaces. I should note it's going to be audio only. Uh, users can participate. Musk publicly confirmed tonight's conversation at a Wall Street Journal event. Yes, yeah, so I um, will be interviewing um, Ron DeSantis, and he has a, quite an announcement to make. Um, and will be, be the first time that something like this is happening on social media and with uh, real-time questions and answers, uh, not, not scripted. Musk still says he is not endorsing a candidate yet, so this isn't an official endorsement, lest you be confused. He did last year, though, tweet this. If DeSantis runs against Biden in 2024, then DeSantis will easily win. He doesn't even need to campaign. Joining us now are the a very serious newsletter writer, Josh Barrow, and CNN political commentator and former White House communications director, Alyssa Farragher. Good morning, guys. 
Good morning. I think we should know that that's the name of it because otherwise yes. it just sounds like Poppy well, saying you're very I know. Serious. It's the name and it's a description. It's, it's <laughs> exactly. two in one. All just perfectly. <laughs> but you're not allowed to smile if you're Mr. Very Serious. Well, I, I get to Rain decide. it in. <laughs> yes, you get to decide. All right, guys, good morning. Um, we've talked a lot about the Twitter of it and how that's unique to say the least. But DeSantis's uh, wife put out this hype video of him saying, you know, America's worth it. You were inside the Trump White House, inside the Trump orbit. What does this mean? So this has, this is going to go one of two directions and nothing in between, either disastrous or be brilliant. Uh, Ron DeSantis has made sort of a name for bypassing traditional media. As we all know, everything is heading towards streaming. And this is going to still be covered in mainstream media. Um, but the attacks also kind of write themselves by Trump. Twitter is a platform Donald Trump understands. I think Dan Scavino, his digital guy, is chomping at the bit for how they can disrupt this, what they can, you know, use their army of trolls to try to distract uh, from this launch. So it's a gamble. It's, if I were advising DeSantis, I think it's too big of a gamble because the first day the launch is the easiest day of a campaign. Straight down the middle, like no screw ups is kind of what you're going for. And I also expect to see Trump uh, recycle kind of the Biden attack of like he's in the basement. He's not on camera. He's not out talking to media. So there's some attacks that write themselves. But then he'll be on Fox just a few hours after that. So we'll Mm -hmm. see. Yeah, there are questions. As Doni was noting earlier, Twitter has not been running at its best always lately. And so we'll see (laughs) if there's any glitches there. But to the announcement in and of itself, long anticipated I think there is a question among some Republicans, though, of whether waiting cost him, because we've seen how in the months since he had that, he soared to reelection. He's sunk in the polls, something that Trump points out every chance he can. Well, and and Trump has been campaigning during that period, whereas Ron DeSantis has been governor in Florida and has obviously this shadow campaign. But I think there's been a disadvantage that he is not out there forthrightly making the case for why he ought to be the Republican nominee for president. I'm going to be very interested to see. I mean, you know, he he is not the front runner in this race. Donald Trump is the front runner in this race. And so at some point he's going to have to make the forthright case about why Donald Trump should not be the Republican nominee. He's been sort of oblique about that. And he talks about I'm a winner without really saying Trump's a loser, even though that's supposed to be the implication. So at some point, you know, he has to make the argument, why not nominate Donald Trump again? There is a way to do that without attacking him from the left. Uh, And I don't think we've really seen that attack tried out. I mean, basically, I expect he'll he'll try to make Anthony Fauci Donald Trump's running mate, basically say all the stuff you didn't like during COVID, that stuff started in 2020 on Donald Trump's watch when I was doing something different. So I think, you know, we'll see the, the extent to which that case resonates. I don't think we've seen him make it full yet. You talked about a shadow campaign. I assume you're talking about all of the bills that he's recently signed. So, Alyssa, if we go through what he's trying to do to run to the right of former President Trump, signed that six-week abortion ban, ended a concealed weapons permit, banned gender-affirming care for trans youth, restricted drag shows, blocked AP African-American studies, prohibited vaccine mandates. I could go on and on. Expanded the so-called don't-say-gay law. Now's the test of that. Now the test is, is that what the Republican Party wants? Well, and let's keep in mind the platform he's choosing, which is Twitter. Only about 20 percent of Americans are on it. We say it all the time. Twitter is not real life. And I sort of wonder if some of these early steps in the primary are also not in touch with what the broadest swath of conservative broadest swath of conservatives want to see. Um, Ron DeSantis, I think, would have been wise to focus on no income tax, great jobs environment in Florida. We got your kids back in school, you know, when other states were still locked down, the free state of Florida. Instead, he went very heavily into the wedge culture war issues. And this is going to be a real test of if that resonates. Now, those are unquestionably powerful with the base, but I don't know that that's the, the full swath of primary Republican primary voters. 
And I think abortion obviously will be one of the biggest ones because it certainly helps in a primary. Does it help in a general that you've signed the six week ban into law? The other thing that DeSantis was making an argument the other day that I found interesting was talking about the Supreme Court. Obviously, that is yes. a big part of what helped Trump get elected. And so whenever he was saying, basically, I would not only be in office for one term, I could potentially have two talking about there could be two vacancies on the Supreme Court and how he would want those to look like Justice Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito. That seemed to be another argument to try to make that to just a bigger swath of Republican voters. I'm not sure I buy this as a differentiator. I mean, any Republican who becomes president is going to appoint conservatives if to the Supreme Court. He has eight years. Right. If, but you, I, if he wins saying both. Saying he has more time. Yeah. I, I assume Donald Trump will say, I'm going to pick a great running mate and I'm going to set that person up really well. I mean, it's, I don't, we've never had this situation where somebody sought a second term as president ever since the uh, a second non-consecutive term as president ever since we had the constitutional amendment creating the two term limit. So this is the first campaign ever where you're going to have someone who is up against this limit where they only have one term. I haven't seen anyone make that issue yet, but it's still kind of a bank shot. I mean, Sonia Sotomayor is 68. Um, I don't think it's very likely that she's going to leave the court involuntarily in the next 10 years under a Republican president. So, I mean, maybe, maybe, you, you know, maybe you get an extra term because you have the because you have the ability to run for reelection. Then maybe she dies. I mean, frankly, that's the morbid thing we're talking about here. But I think it's 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 a contingency on top of a contingency. And all of the Republicans, if they are elected, will appoint essentially the same kind of judges. I did think one line of attack that DeSantis had that actually has broken through and it wasn't directly from him. It was from his his pack was to say that Donald Trump has now spent more money attacking him in the primary than he did to boost Republicans in 2022. Mm. That actually, I think, resonates with primary voters who are like, wait, he's not fighting for all of our guys. It's about him and it's about, you know, fighting his grievances. So they should lean more into that. I, I would agree that I'm not sure this is as strong. He's actually taking it from the Trump playbook. I remember advising him on putting out a list of potential Supreme Court nominees in 2020. Um, and any Republican is going to is going to uh, go for conservative justices. Yeah, we'll see what it actually looks like. I mean, everyone, all eyes will be on the launch, but also the what ensuing. it sounds like. We don't even get to see them. Yeah. Audio mm-hmm. launch first, right? <laughs> Back to audio. Back to audio. Uh, thank you, guys. Thank, you. thank you. you both so much. Alyssa Farragher and Josh Barrow. Also this morning, speaking of not just audio, visuals well, Netflix cracking down on users who share passwords. Harry Enten is here with the data on how much you may now have to pay up. <laughs> Destiny's Child. Now you've been maxing on my Is that right? It's like what you would yeah. do. me back All right, the days of using your parents, or in my case, your sister's Netflix account, <laughs> might be behind us. I hope my siblings are watching this. In 2017, Netflix tweeted, quote, love is sharing a password. Six years later, though, the company has a very different message. Now telling subscribers, quote, your Netflix account is for you and the people you live with, your household. Seems a little judgy, but here with this morning's number is CNN's senior data reporter, Harry Enten. Harry, what is this morning's number? All right, so let's take a look. This morning's number is $7.99. I was holding up that $2 bill. I rounded up to 8 before the commercial break. That's the new monthly charge if you want to share your account with someone outside of your household and give you an understanding of why Netflix is doing this. So this is Netflix sharing globally. Households who share 100 plus million, according to Netflix, and that is out of 233 million households that subscribe. So a large portion, in fact, do share those passwords. And here's another reason why they're doing it. They're seeing some, their subscriber growth 
is shrinking, right? So it was up only 5% this past quarter from a year ago, 7% it was last year, 14%, 23%. So this is not the trend line Netflix wants to see. So they want to get more subscribers, and they figure if they crack down on the sharing of the passwords, perhaps they could get some more subscribers. Mm. Will they lose subscribers for charging more to share? Yeah, so this to me sort of gets at what's going on. What is the top reason you subscribe to a streamer? Cost is number one at 37%, 35% because of specific shows. The ability to log in share is just 2%. It's number eight on the list, the top reasons why. But what I will point out in terms of sharing uh, your streaming logins, 50% say charging for sharing is a reason to, in fact, drop a streamer. And 39% say they would actually pay for being able to share those passwords if they will split the cost. So I'm not sure they're going to gain folks, but I'm not sure they're necessarily going to lose that many folks either. Yeah, certainly not. They're watching The Crown, so. Love The Crown. Thank you, Harry. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks, Harry. Get your new password. (laughs) Groundbreaking medical technology powered by AI could give those who can no longer communicate a voice again. Ardonio Sullivan tried it out. We'll tell you how close it got to reading his mind. Good morning. Coffee, thank you. What's your Netflix password? I don't even know. Mine is actually... Mind reading may not only be a thing for psychics and mentalists, soon it could be the work of artificial intelligence. That's because scientists in Texas are now training artificial intelligence to read brain scans and then spit out a partial transcript of what that person was thinking during the scan. The research could have major implications, obviously, for people with certain disabilities. CNN's Donny O'Sullivan took a firsthand look at what this technology could do. You're reading people's minds. So we don't like to use the term mind reading. These neuroscientists at the University of Texas in Austin say they've made a major breakthrough. They've figured out how to translate brain activity into words using artificial intelligence. These are different images. Earlier this month, they published a paper explaining how they had research volunteers listen to audio clips while having their brain scanned by an fMRI machine. Over time, AI algorithms, the very same tech that's behind ChatGPT, were able to figure out what the volunteers were listening to just by watching their brains. It is just crazy. You can watch how blood flows through the brain mm-hmm. and using AI and GBT and everything else, translate it into words. Yeah, it's wild that this works when you put it that way. Thumbs up, Donnie. To test it all out, Professor Alexander Hoot and I had our brain scanned while listening to parts of the Wizard of Oz audiobook. Chinip, I only had a brain. Big brain. Like obnoxiously big. All right, Danny, we have a picture of your brain. I so, have a brain. Yeah, it looks good. I was scanned first, followed by Professor Hoot, capturing images of the changes in our brain's blood flow as we listened to the words from the audiobook and showing how our brains interpreted those words. When she had finished her meal and was about to go back to the road of yellow brick, she was startled to hear a deep groan nearby. You can see that they're getting recordings every two seconds. While he's listening to a story, we will feed this data through our decoder and try to predict the story that he's currently listening to. The next morning, the results were in. Okay, so it's been 24 hours since we got our brain scanned. You can confirm I have a brain. Absolutely. Brilliant. So we were able to decode some stuff from my brain, not so much from yours. So uh, this is one from my brain. This is from The Wizard of Oz. So on the left side is the actual words that uh, I heard. When she had finished her meal and was about to go back to the road of yellow brick, she was startled to hear a deep groan nearby. And the decoded version of this 
is on the right. It's, I was about to head back to school and I hear this strange voice calling out to me. So it gets some things right. So this like was about to go back, was about to head back. It completely misses some things like mm -hmm. the road of yellow brick versus school. But then it gets this, uh, this nice kind of example. So she hears something and then instead of a deep groan nearby, it said a strange voice calling out to me. It means sure. something related, even if it's not exactly the right words. Still pretty incredible to think that was about to head back as something that just by scanning your brain. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's one of the things that's really surprising to us about this. It can get things like that. It can get these entire phrases of exact words. Mm. Okay, so here's this same segment for you. Now, so we expected mine not to be Grace. Because we haven't trained the model on you. The whole day I'd be fine, but she wanted me to make it to her place. First, I got a little excited about it. <laughs> the reason it wasn't able to decode my brain was because the technology currently needs people to sit in the fMRI machine for more than 16 hours so the AI models can train on specific people's brains. Are we going to live in a world where, you know, I can walk by somebody on the street and they'll be able to hold something up to my head and they'll know what I'm thinking? Currently, we're very far from that. That might also never be possible. We can't completely rule it out, but as far as we know, that certainly won't be possible in the next few decades. The real potential application of this is actually helping people who are unable to speak without them needing to get neurosurgery. Now we have this like snapshot of the brain. And Jerry Tang explained how they used OpenAI's GPT large language model to help decode the brain. The GPT model is made up of millions of pages of text from the internet that the AI trains on and learns how sentences are constructed and how people talk and think. GPT basically made our predictions a lot better. But it doesn't just work listening to audio. Professor Hu showed us what happened when he watched a movie with no sound while his brain was scanned. Watch as the technology is able to decode what his eyes are seeing. She then took my hand and held it to her lips. She kissed it. I smiled and oh my she pulled God. me in for a hug. I got her back for about hours. I had to stop the bleeding and gave her my shirt to put over it. It's pretty good. I don't know, it's, it's a pretty That's good description of what was happening here. Wow. Should we be scared by the work people like you are doing? We think it's really important to continually evaluate um, the implications of brain decoding and also to start thinking about enacting policies that protect mental privacy and regulate what brain data can be used for. So, yeah, you heard the term there, mental privacy, which is the most dystopian so thing. caught my attention. Yeah, most dystopian thing I've, I've heard in a while. So, look, uh, it was unable to read my brain, but we did confirm I, I, there's something in here. <laughs> um, but uh, look, this only works right now in very controlled uh, environments. But as he said there, this one day could progress in a way that it actually can read your thoughts. But really, really important potential. And even last when we uh, debuted the story last night, heard from somebody who has uh, a loved one who can, can't communicate after a stroke. Yeah. This kind of technology could be life changing. Yeah, and it's important to talk about because while it's far from finalized, you know, we always talk about the dangerous side of AI and what that could look like with lawmakers. Yeah. It's important to note there could be a lot of potential good here. A lot of potential good, but also, you know, a lot of potential scare. Do we want to know what's in your... Do I want to know your do, thoughts? Do I want to know your thoughts? <laughs> I feel like uh, I'm, I'm pretty blunt with my thoughts, but I don't know but yours as well. I, I, yes, I, 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 I hide these. my darkness. Please, yeah. <laughs> Tony, thank you very much. Thank you, Tony. All right, happening right now, we are also tracking the strongest storms in decades that is now hitting the U.S. territory of Guam. We'll get the latest for you on the ground ahead.
the greatest movies of all time we watch that every Christmas Christmas vacation yeah it's so good I, it's not that scene in particular but it kind of looks like it because for your morning moment a baseball game turned into a scene basically out of National Lampoon's Christmas vacation when this squirrel started running like the outfield wall the Yankees Orioles game on Tuesday completely not at all freaking out some of those <laughs> those guys <laughs> eventually the squirrel jumped down the 8 foot 5 inch wall and flew and through the air onto the field. The Yankees, though, not distracted, making a 6-5 comeback win over the Orioles. Still in the scroll, still the show, though. The highlight of the show for me. <laughs> not a sports person, you know, they'd see that. Oh, but I like the squirrel. We'll see you tomorrow. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. See the new Central starts right now. Look at that beautiful day out there. Love that shot of the Hudson. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.